Welcome, everybody, to episode six of the Monitor Keeping Podcast. I'm Alan Stevens, along with Kai, who's here, and a guest today, uh, Ryan McVeigh. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? <laughs> good. We're going to get into some good topics. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy, but first, we also want to uh, make sure we hit on a few things. Thank you to Eric Burke over there at uh, NPR. Uh, for all the support, being part of the network, uh, again, you can check out their website. It's MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, they have multiple podcasts now under the umbrella. There's lots of info there, guys. Just about anything you want to get into, uh, they're covering. So go ahead and take a look. Check out their shop. Check out the uh, the Patreon if you want to sign up and give some support. Um, you know, Help us get more information out to you guys. So with that yeah. being said, all right, let's get into it. All right. So today's episode uh, is going to really be um, uh, us uh, talking with Ryan about um, UV and uh, all of our experiences back and forth. Just uh, just kind of really um, getting as many things as we can on the table about the subject of uh using uh, ultraviolet rays or using uv within your enclosure and just just a uv period and then also we'll have a segment since um a lot of us are keeping uh, endo species or all three of us are keeping endo species and so we should have a a great a great episode today all right you guys um well thanks uh ryan for for coming on man we really appreciate you dude thanks uh, for having me i was i was excited to see you guys do this and i feel bad because i still haven't listened to one but i will i swear and, and, uh, but no it's like it's cool to see somebody finally like just focus on monitors and i'm just me and eric are just veran veranded nuts so. yeah yeah we've i've done a few podcasts monitor related with my work with stuff and um you know i kind of get a drift on how to do the podcast more of a more of a guest though um you know and uh just getting along doing this has been pretty exciting so far me and alan and under under uh, npr and stuff i mean those guys just uh hey thank you guys for for all of this you know yeah good news um, over there yeah yeah no, now as far as uh i guess getting right into the whole thing um you know i just want to let everybody know that uh there's a I guess debatable topic on this one where usage of uv and not usage of uv is is uh, used by everybody um you know as far as breeding and 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 raising up and being able to have success i've seen people do it on on both both sides or um where you know there's kind of i guess always people are saying that you should use it and you shouldn't use it and um i would say that i i use I use it on most of my enclosures. Um, I try to use it on most of my females, definitely. Um, but, uh, you know, I've had some hiccups where animals I wasn't using UV on, um, they weren't bouncing back really well after courting and breeding and stuff. And um, after laying eggs, they just took forever to bounce back until I put them outside in the sun. And I can um, tell you why that is, too. Yeah. Like, so, so it's kind of funny. So, so like, but with Alan, like, he's like, Hey, you want to talk about UV? And I'm like, Oh, you want me to get on my soapbox and just play <laughs> for an hour? Totally. But so UV became this huge subject for me because I just, I, I, it didn't make sense to me why we talk about whether an animal needs it or not at right. all, because it, they live outside 
and, and they're a diurnal animal. Yeah, yeah, they're a diurnal right. sun chasing lizard. Yeah, and they so so they do use it. And the other part of it too is UV lighting isn't just UVB, and that's the biggest thing everybody needs to know. It's not just yeah. UVB. There's way more going on in that spectrum that's affecting your animals other than just vitamin D three synthesis. So it's it's a way bigger topic than that. And eat, and then the other part of it too, like one part of the argument for not needing UV with varanids is. You know, well, they get the D from whole prey items, things like that, and and it's it's true, it's right. You 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 can circumvent the UVB portion of it. You can't recreate UVA, and UVA is insanely important to how animals react with their environment, how they um, how they they see um, a lot of uh, uh, iguanas. So Cyclura, iguana, Tenosaurus, all of those guys have dual cones in their eyes. They can see the UVA spectrum. We can't. They can. It makes a huge difference on how they see their surroundings, how they view their food, things like that. It's it's massively different than how we see it. Um, and it also affects a lot of other things like serotonin development in their brains. Um, I did a study with uh, Amazon tree boas and, and using UV, which super crepuscular nocturnal snake. Snakes don't need UV. And just the UV, just the animals with UV and animals without, I had six babies in each set. And I had one side with UV, one side without. And the ones with, all of them did fine. They were all healthy. But the ones that had UV, that didn't have UV were very typical of an Amazon in captivity. They kind of hid in the back corner. They didn't perch a lot. They did, but not hanging out in the trees like you'd expect them. And they were aggressive, but I kind of had to go in and like wake them up and like, hey, food. And then they'd strike and then they were crazy like always. The ones with UV were always perched up were always watching me through the room. They were striking at me when I was 10 feet away. They noticed and watched me. And it was a very big difference on how they reacted and, and, and to their environment and stuff. And the way I tell people is what you're seeing is basically animals that you don't think need, need UVB, so you don't do it. You're taking away that UVA, which is basically causing seasonal depression. So you're, take, you're lowering their, their serotonin development and a lot of the things that how they react in their environment. It's basically, it also makes them, sort of, depending on the species, kind of colorblind. So they go from this rich environment to basically black and white with no sun. It's like living in Seattle. Like nobody wants to. Yeah. They just go because Amazon's there. So or like living in a closet or like uh, living in a dark closet and then you're all of a sudden exposed to everything. Right. Um, I, I was kind of getting to that before in the, I think in a previous episode where, um, you know, when I first started, I was just using a little floodlight in a big enclosure. So it was a little floodlight and I was trying to have that ambient light spread to the rest of the enclosure when it really wasn't working. And then once I was lighting up my enclosures more, my animals would respond much better, a lot less like they were, you know, trapped in a little closet, you know? Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, the, I, I feel like lighting up my enclosures, not just using fluorescent lighting and stuff like that but actually just lighting it up you know oh, yeah. um and having light from full from one side to the other without just having a little tiny corner that's that's lit well that's so, the thing like oh so i say but like doing lighting you do it in levels just like they would have like you do branch across the top basking platforms up here super bright full spectrum light uv your heat and then underneath yeah. you've got high boxes Darkness. and you've got layers and you've got different shades and that's like when we talk about reptiles we talk about heat gradients there's light gradients there's uv gradients there you need to provide an enormous a gradient in every aspect of their enclosure humidity gradients everything 
because in their natural habitat, they're going to be able to find variations and you need to be able to do that and create those microclimates within every, in every cage. But it, it's the same with lighting. Yeah. I love that. Cause you know, talking about that, they can do that within the same tree. Say you got a tree that's yep. 50 feet tall, a monitor could go from the bottom to the top and get all different levels of uh, humidity, um, temperatures, you know, depending on what side of the tree it's on and how it uses it throughout the day. So, um, you know, I, I do think about those things sometimes. But for full disclosure, for for the listeners out there, um, you've heard Ryan and, and Kai talk a little bit. I'm one of those guys that's super skeptical of UV. And actually, Ryan, the first time I reached out to you, I, I think I sent you a couple messages and said, hey, can I, can I talk to you on the phone? Yeah. And, yeah. and I put it out there and I said, hey, is this snake oil? Is this voodoo? You know, um, yeah. because for the most part, I've been I've been doing all right without UV in most of my cages for monitors. Um, well, I guess so. Uh, to cover well, the other end of the spectrum for just for everybody out there, I I could say in this group, you know, I'm on that other side. Now we did have a great talk. You you led into a lot of things that I want you to share. You know, of course, today with other people that's got my yeah. mind thinking about things differently too, but. Uh, yeah, just to put that out there. So full disclosure, <laughs> for you, folks. Yeah, if I if I can if I can get you to all of a sudden be like, oh, maybe I need lights, then I, then we're good. Yeah. Like, I just gotta just gotta get everybody one at a time. I'm gonna get in your brain and make you go. Actually, <laughs> while I used to think was stupid, now that I think of it, I'll get you. I, I really I really felt like um, I tried like the solar glow from I, I don't forget I forget the company Exoterra maybe yeah. um, a couple of different other lines of uh, the um you know power sun of course yeah all the, um, all the mercury vapors yeah, yeah and then uh, and then i have you know i've used i currently and i still use it only because i'm a, I, I used to be a chameleon guy as well so i still use the linear fluorescent tubes um and that's just because they also cover more space than just the the regular bulb and i can see those those bulbs when they're only dedicated dedicated to just 75 or even the higher watts i don't even use those higher watts at all so i use i mean i will use 150 watts but spread out in three bulbs not just a 150 watt bulb and so my usage on those bulbs doesn't really work for me unless um it's just i'm using the 75 watts and i can really space them out you know and so my mind my my usage now is uh is after going through all of those, maybe what I think like five different brands of UV bulbs, compact bulbs as well, you know, that people are just saying that are garbage. Now, um, <laughs> most of this stuff, nothing. Right. <laughs> now, now I, I would, I would, I, I'm hoping like all these bulbs we can kind of really discuss a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I, I actually, I actually haven't had a, a chance to go and buy myself a UV meter just yet. I've, I've gone over it with Alan maybe a, a few months ago and, and I was kind of just going through, hey, just asking everybody that uses, um, you know, mercury vapor bulbs and stuff like that. And everybody just told me to go with the Mega Rays. And so that's what I ended up buying. Um, and uh, I have just the 75 watts, though, spread out um, between a couple enclosures and stuff like that. And I have I didn't even throw them in every cage because, yeah. you know, I didn't want to do that and have to just change them because I didn't like them all of a sudden. And then I'm going to change all all, all 10 yeah. cases, so so i'll use two there's a couple things too there's just just to point out right off the beginning one this is something that most people don't realize and where for all of us because we do endo species 
No, everybody, when we start talking about temperatures, everybody's going to think we're idiots and don't know how to take care of monitors. Because every monitor species that you talk to anybody, 140 degree basking spot, you cook them, you give them all the, and then you steep dirt and all this other stuff. And I'm like, dude, my spinulosis, if they, if I get in, if they get above 100 degrees, they waste away in like a week and die. It's, yeah. they cannot get that hot. Yeah. And then when you talk to people, they're like, no, that's crazy. All monitors are that hot. I'm like, yeah, show me on, 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 on Lesser Sunda Island or in somewhere in Indonesia where it hits 140 degrees ever. Yeah. Doesn't. yeah I, I don't really go above uh, 125, 130 for surface temperatures. And I, and the thing is that, okay, so here's where I've had to give me one second. Um, I'm about to hit my inhaler. So it's going to be funny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cover um, for you. La la la. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, was keeping like Argus, Flavi Crosses when I was younger, water monitors. You know, those guys are typically heat them and feed them, right? Like, oh, yeah. Our, our, our normal, pretty hot, all that, right? But once I got into the mangroves, keeping them anything that hot, melanus or anything above yep. where their ambient is above like 88, 92, that's their comfortable zone. Anything, anything above that, they're going to be hidden away, right? Yep. And so, um, what I had to do is. I still have to apply the 120, 130, 135 surface temperature, but it's in a small space in the enclosure, right? I would say 25% or less of the actual enclosure is that little area. And then the rest of the enclosure has to be big enough to support 80 degrees. If it's yep. too small, basically that other side is like 85, 90, you know, it's going to basically get too hot rather than having a, an actual gradient. So my cages have had to be bigger. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, those are, those are where now using UVB for those larger enclosures and all that, getting it well lit and, and, uh, I'm actually just kind of bouncing back between many different usages of, of yeah. UV. Yeah. So. so there's a lot of options. So let me go through these real quick and I'll kind of break down the only bulbs in, in the market currently <clears throat> that have UV output. So if you start off with like the lowest, it's the standard incandescence that you see like the day blue bulbs from Exoterra or the whatever day bulbs that have the neodymium coating. That is a thing. It does produce UVA. It's, it is a, it's a way to produce UVA. That UVA is so small, it's almost negligible, but it technically has it. So I, I'll any incandescent bulb that says it has UV, it doesn't. Any halogen bulb that says it has UV, it doesn't. They don't make UV. They don't hit those frequencies. You can't do it. So any of them that you see on Amazon that says it does it, they don't. Or it's that neodymium coating, and it's a very, very, very low UVA output. So when we're talking UVB, there's only three technologies currently on the market right now that produce UVB. There's, met, um, there's fluorescent, there's metal halide, and there's mercury vapors. <clears throat> fluorescent is my go-to. Um, and I'll get to it in a second on why, but um, fluorescent, what you're looking at is, for, well, you said earlier about coils are all detrimental and people like tubes. Everybody that has an opinion on fluorescent lighting is wrong because they have no idea how it works at all. They just remember that a guy said something and somebody else said something is bad about UV. And then the regurgitation of that and the telephone game over time. And, and then now it's, I had a girl tell me that coils will kill your animal and tubes are more like sunlight. They're actually the exact same thing, except one of them is heated and turned into a coil and then plugged into a, a bulb. And then the bulb, the difference between a tube 
and a coil. This is the only difference, is that it's the same material, same phosphors inside, same electricity, same everything. The only difference is that the ballast that fires the fluorescent bulb is in the base of a coil, and it's inside the unit of a tube fixture. That's the sure. only difference between the two. So they, those bulbs work, right? They work amazing. <laughs> I almost I almost solely use coils. And I'll tell you, so I might as well just tell you why not. But the reason is I like tubes for the coverage, but there was a study that came out like eight years ago that showed that chameleons could could regulate their UV independent of heat. And and monitors do the same thing. So that parietal eye or pineal eye that they have on the top of their head, that little tiny dot that you see in like monitors and iguanas and bearded dragons have it. There's actually an eyeball. It doesn't have a lens, but there's an eyeball in the top of their brain. And it like you can actually look at their brain and see this little eyeball on the top. Um, and the, there's a hole in the top of their skull. That clear skull, that clear scale allows light to go down. And it's a subconscious eye. They don't actively see out of it. But what it does is it helps them to regulate their lighting. So they can regulate UV independent of heat. And if you think about it, even in nature, we were talking about the different variations of shade and things like that. But UV and the light is bouncing off every surface. So even if you're sitting under a tree completely shaded, if you take a UV meter with you, you're still going to hit, you're still going to have UV from bouncing off from all the different areas and filtering through. It's not going to be as high as if you step into the sunlight, but you're still going to have it. So they're able to get away from the heat and the sunlight and still absorb amounts of UVB. So if you have an animal that's like not doing well with its calcium rate, phosphorus ratio, and it wa it wants to bask more to get the UV, but may if it has a say, it's a wild caught animal and you're bringing it in to get it situated, and you're getting it through that first like stage of clearing them out and getting them healthy and getting them hydrated, and it's got it's going to have a parasite load. So if you get it really warm that may negatively affect, it may cause its metabolism to go up with these endospecies, absolutely. It cranks their metabolism and they waste away before they can get healthy. So yeah. if you do- happen. Yeah, so that's why I stopped yeah. using dual heat and UV and I did, I did, I'll do it on one side if for like the basking spot with a coil. So I do a heat, a heat light and then a coil in a silver yeah. dome. And what that does is it gives them, a, it also gives you a better gradient. So with a tube, from where that tube is down, there's a gradient going away from it, and there's a gradient like front to back of the enclosure, but it's not that far generally unless it's like a three, four foot deep enclosure. But for most people, they're not going to see that, especially when you're talking tanks and smaller enclosures. So you're not going to see that depth. So the real you know, uh, gradient is from the bulb down, and that's it. Other than that, they can't get away from it unless you really make sure they have a lot of hides and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of people just don't know that right off the bat. So you can stress those animals out by not being able to get away from it. With a coil, you provide a really intense UV right next to where the heat is, and then it's a completely three-dimensional gradient. As you go in any direction away from that coil, you're going to start to lessen the UV. And then I take another UV bulb and put it on the other side with no heat. So there's a, a, hot, a big heat spot on each side, or a heat spot here, heavy UV on each side, and in the middle there's varying gradients of UV in between with a lot of stuff they can hide and get away from it and regulate it. And they do that subconsciously, and that's why I ended up going to coils. Now, tubes aren't bad. Like, nobody should be like, oh, I'm never using a tube again. That's great. Just make sure you're providing those different shades and you're thinking about those gradients of how they can get away from it other than just up and down. 
Like, how can yeah. you start to create some more gradients? How can you shade more light? Things like that. Um, or even be able to get them up really close to it where maybe it's on the other side away from the heat, you know, if you're doing a tube. But that's why metal, metal halide and mercury vapors, I kind of moved away from them completely just because of that. It, it just locks you into that where you can't give them that gradient unless they want heat, unless you do another bulb anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Now, as far as like um, space and uh, with uh, just just on still on topic of the coil bulb, right? Yeah. Because it's to be honest, it was my best option because of size and how I use bulbs, right? So I don't use anything much hotter than like forty-five watt, fifty watt bulbs, and I use I use mostly BR thirties and BR forties. Okay. I have a couple. I have a couple par thirty eights. But um, I currently now, because most of my stuff are pretty thin skin monitors, I really don't want any burning. And not all of my cages are really tall, right? They're like maybe yeah. two, two and a half, three feet tall. So, you know, anything with uh, crazy lumens and uh, a really hot bulb isn't going to work for my setup, right? And so I would hopefully like to use those coil bulbs now that you mentioned, you know, the, they're, they're actually effective and everything like that. Um, how far away – should the basking spot be from those bulbs? It depends on what you're going for. Like, to be honest, with a, with most of the monitor species, especially the ones we're working with, you really wouldn't have to do much more than a tropical type series bulb at about 12 inches. Uh, that's good. Okay. I mean, if you want to go, if you have to, if the basking spot's between 12 and 18 inches, then do like a desert series bulb because that extra distance will basically bring that rating oh, down wow. to a tropical level. Okay. All right. Now, yeah, eight, most of them are eight, twenty watts, so I mean, you lose all, you take up a lot of energy, and you, you they don't really, or you take off a lot of what your energy usage is, and they really yeah. don't put out much for heat. There's some heat in the ballast, obviously, right. just from the you know energy conversion, but it's not that much. Okay, now my, some of my basking spots are like six to eight inches away. Is that too close? Uh, no, but I would definitely go down to the tropical one then. So I was starting to talk about UV and, and really breaking down and understanding what UV is. So UV light is ultraviolet. And what I, ultraviolet means is it's outside of the visible spectrum of lighting at the violet end, which is shorter wavelengths um, or yeah, shorter wavelengths. Infrared is outside of the red spectrum and that gets longer wavelengths. So UV light in reptiles and in animals and just in what we it, there's a lot of different pieces to it. But the pieces we care about are UVA, UVB and UVC. Um, UVC is what gives you cancer and sunburns and sterilizes germs in hospitals. That it it breaks down biological material, um, so that's bad. We don't we don't want that on our animals, um, and that greatly affects the UV index as well. And I'll talk about that at the end of this. What the UV index versus UVB is, but we got to talk about this on why those matter and why they're different. But so UVC we want to stay away from. UVB most people know is you know what uh, reptiles synthesize vitamin d3 at um so uvc is wavelengths from 100 to 280 nanometers they're short waves um uvb is 280 to 315 and reptiles synthesize vitamin d3 at 295 296 nanometers at a peak so we're creating bulbs that peak we want them to peak their highest output of uv in that spot and that because that's where our animals use it if you were sterilizing something you'd tweak the uv to peak in the uvc um, and if you've seen, if you guys have ever seen like the happy lights, the internal lights for mood lighting, 
that's UVA. So UVA is 315 nanometers to 400 nanometers. So it's a little bit longer wavelength right before you get into the visible spectrum. You can actually kind of, we can see influences of UVA. Um, when you look at some of the, all of the different articles that have been coming out about uh, reptiles being fluorescent, that's under basically a black light produces a lot of UVA and will cause that fluorescence in a wavelength that allows us to see it. The same thing with scorpions. When you put a black light on a scorpion, you're you're hitting it with UVA that uh, reacts with a layer inside their uh, exoskeleton and causes it to fluoresce. So you can kind of see interactions of UVA in that way. But UVA is also uh, directly related to serotonin development in the brains of living animals, uh, us included. So again, that's why uh, seasonal depression is a thing. People staying inside, not getting as much direct UVA sunlight, um, or why you're happier on a sunny day than you are on a cloudy or rainy day. It's that that's an instant direct reflection of how UVA influences your mindset and your emotions. It does that to animals too. Um, and that to me is why if we're talking about whether an animal needs UV or not, everybody focuses on whether they need UVB. We can supplement vitamin D3 and we can get, and we can feed like our varanids whole prey where they get D3 from their prey and they don't need, technically they can live and we can supplement out the need for UVB. We cannot supplement UVA. We can't, we cannot do anything um, to supplement UVA. So the only way we can get UVA is by giving them these lights that have UVA. And all lights in, that are commercially available that produce UVB for reptiles also produce UVA. So that's why I tell people, like, even if you don't think your animal needs UVB, that's not the only thing this bulb gives off. And they do need UVC. And kind of that's what you were talking about with some of the females not bouncing back as well. That's immediately related to UVA. So... So UVA is really, really important for animals and how they see their environment and things like that. Um, so when we're manufacturing a bulb, when it comes to fluorescent, what's inside is a mixture of phosphor powders that coat the inside of the glass. When you fire up a, a fluorescent tube, what you're doing is just hitting it with a ton of electricity, a massive electronic shock. That's why you have to have a ballast. It absorbs a ton of energy and blasts that bulb with a huge hit of energy causes all the electrons inside the bulb to start freaking out and fluoresce and light up. And that's why that gives off light. As those electrons are bouncing around inside, they're freaking out. They hit the particles of phosphors on the, on the inside of the bulb, and then they basically burn it. And those particles of phosphors that get burned, when it burns, it takes that energy and it takes it from a visible light where we can see it and bounces it into the invisible spectrum of ultraviolet. And then you're trying to change the chemical composition of those phosphors to peak at the places you want them to. What people don't realize, I can make a bulb that peaks wherever I want it to. So I can make it so it has a perfect amount of UVB, but then I can also make it so it has so much UVC your animal cooks like it's in a microwave. So underneath, yeah, so under, and that actually kind of happened in the industry around 2008. Some manufacturers got some tube bulbs, the phosphor mixture was off, and it caused a bunch of animals to go blind, and they died from it. It was a huge recall, and then that stigma stayed with fluorescent lighting from that moment on. But the problem was no one understood what was wrong. They just went, somebody had a light, and their animal died, fluorescence bad, never use it again. And then the rumor mill started, and then everybody having an opinion about something they didn't know about. But that's what happened. But that's how UV is created out of fluorescent bulbs, and that's why... You can use your UVB meter, but you can't 
just use your UVB meter because you'd be missing that UVC spectrum and you wouldn't even know it was wrong. So then there's the other side, which is the UV index. Now, Dr. Francis Baines and some other people have done some studies talking about Ferguson zones and the UV index, and that's where everybody's moved to. But there's a problem with using the UV index too. Like I said, I think when we got caught up, when we were off, is if you think about the sun, there's solar flares, there's clouds, there's different humidities, there's things that affect the sunlight that gets down to Earth. But overall, the sun's a pretty consistent output. Like, it's going to be, on, in a week, if every day is clear, the humidity is the same, all the environmental conditions on Earth are the same, and the sun's not having some crazy flares or anything, you're going to get basically the same, in my backyard, I'm going to get almost the same UV reading and UVB and UV index every day uh, in a short period. Over the seasons, things like that, it changes, whatever. But it's not going to change that much. So with manufactured bulbs that's not totally the case because you're not measuring something that's consistent and the uv index was actually created by a, Can a canadian meteorologist it's a weighted system to weight the uh it, it weights uva b and c so uvc is barely weighted at all it's super super minimal if you have a ton of uva it doesn't really do there's no bad thing to it it can't get hurt from a ton of uva so it doesn't put much weight on it UVB, it kind of has a little bit of weight because you can overdo UVB and be, get into a dangerous area, um, even with sunlight. And then UVC is extremely heavily weighted because even tiny bits of UVC can cause massive changes in sunburns. Um, and that's what the UV index is actually for. It was actually created um, as a formulation of those three uh, UV uh, wavelengths to tell you if you have fair skin and the UV index is from here to here, you're going to get a sunburn outside in about an hour. And that's what the UV index is for. But now we've kind of changed it to taking a look at reptiles and UV lighting. So what that's doing is it's taking a reading of A, B, and C on a weighted scale. Again, that's a good way to do it outside because UV, A, B, and C aren't going to be too different generally other than if you get further away from the sun. If you're in a desert, you know, different climates are going to change it, but it's going to be pretty consistent every day. So... But what that doesn't do is when you're talking about bulbs that are manufactured, I can make a bulb that has no UVC, a little bit of UVB, and a crazy insane amount of UVA and have a UV index of 12. That, and then I, that, it, does that exist? No, no, it doesn't exist, but it could happen. So that, that I'm just saying like that's a thing that I could manufacture. Then I could take a bulb that has no UVC, no UVA, and just UVB and make it a pretty high output. And that would have a UV index of 12 at 12 inches. Then I could take a bulb that has no UVA, no UVB, and a tiny little bit of UVC, and that one would measure 12 on the UVA at 12 inches. So I could make three bulbs that are totally different. Most of them would kill your – two of the three will kill your animal, but under UV index, they all read the same. So you really need to look at both. You need to look at the UV index to see if there's a high amount of output of UVC and make sure you're within a steady – range that's safe for your animal and that's what the ferguson zones are and then you need to use your uvb to see where the level of uvb at 295 actually is either way you can kind of use them to tell it how like how well your bulb is projecting uv if it's burned out over time but the only way you can truly know if you have a good bulb and that that is safe and doesn't have a ton of uvc and is giving off the uvb that's needed by your animal is to use both meters all right, Both so okay. now, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is where yeah. um, this is where I'm actually um, 
not really well rehearsed in at all. So, okay, now well, what would our monitors now would Australian monitors and our Indonesian species have different necessities of UV? Oh, absolutely. So you have different Ferguson zones, and that's basically what the Ferguson zones are is it's ranges of UV index that make sense for animals on where they come from. So like the jungle animals would have lower. Yeah, but okay. it's not totally like jungle desert. And I, that is my biggest pet peeve in our hobby is that we separate things into jungle and desert just as a quick sidebar. There's a, there's, there's a huge amount of habitats between the top of the dunes of the Sahara and the bottom of the rainforest. So yeah. we can't just design crap for those. Because we yeah. miss 99.9% .9 of where everything else lives. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but you see where my questions are coming from? They're basically yeah. like a like a an inexperienced person with not really understanding basic, you know, I would keep in, in captivity, I would keep an Argus like I would keep a, um, like a beard or anything. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or uh, almost. Depending right? on which one, I mean, yeah. Right, and so um, I mean, in a, a little bit different, I guess I would probably have more sand for the Argus, but I have uh, most of my mangrove monitors. They just like much more cover than anything. Yeah, you know, it's like they'll they rather just peek their heads out and have and, have cover. Even the tame ones would would rather be under cover. And, and that's uh, what the changes. That's what the changes in the UV index. It's not that if I go to Indonesia and then I go to Australia and I'm out in the bare sun in the middle of the day. I'm going to get massively different UV readings. You will because you're closer or further away from the equator. The atmosphere is thicker in different places. Around the Earth, it still changes based on cloud cover, um, how yeah. the atmosphere health is, if there's holes in the ozone. All that stuff's going to change it. It's steady in one spot, though. Yeah. Tech, kind of. So, but this is so. But this is what's the, the, all of those things matter when it comes to what kind of UV needs you have. That's why those Ferguson zones change. So tropical animals like the mangrove monitors um, and like my spinulosis, the Offenbergia, the Timors, all of those Indonesian species, generally you're looking at like a, uh, probably a UV index around two to two and a half, maybe two to three, two and a half. So not too crazy, but for like your desert, you know, Odatria from Australia, you're looking at like four and a half or higher. But okay. what's crazy is it's not just about desert and tropical because the animals that like the most UV and that actually do zone four and up to like eight and a half, around eight, eight and a half UV, in, uh, UV index, which is the highest you want to go before you can really start messing up your animals. Are Cyclura. Cyclura. Yeah. They live on the ground, but they live on in the, uh, in the Caribbean in a super tropical area, but they live out on rocks in the rocky areas out in this bare sun on the coast. So the open, they get right? in, the open, in the open at the equator, they're getting hit with the gnarliest heavy UV and they sit on the open along like hillsides, along beaches and things like that, where there's no cover or there's yeah. little shrubs and stuff. And they just get blasted with it. So like, yeah. it's not totally where they're from as much as how they're utilized. It, it is, but there's more yeah. factors than just like tropical desert leaves, not there's more things right. that go into what, what they would actually see when they're out there. All right. Yeah. That, that's, that's great, great information. I think, uh, the numbers now, um, I guess if we can, uh, what do you guys got going on there? <laughs> oh, no, I uh, having technical difficulties, but I'm, I'm back. <laughs> right. okay, we, so, and we are uh, recording still. All right. right. Yeah, um, so yeah, the, as far as numbers go now, um, you mentioned like two, two and a half, three. Yep. Um, now that would be on a UVB meter 
Aura. UV Index. UV Index. Okay. Yeah. So now there's there's two things. My friend Damon was mentioning me to me me this too because he is also a chameleon guy and he also utilizes it for his his exotic birds too. Oh, oh yeah. And so right and so um, he was just telling me yo like you know it's it's not just to use one but you want to get the other one too. Now okay um I guess for me I'm still trying to just uh like I guess put um um. Like, you know, how, you're, how, how you're mentioning those two, right? Yeah, I guess so here, you, let me get you with the numbers. You got oh, a pen? I'll give you guys uh, all your numbers you need to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hey, Everybody get a pen? Yeah, everybody get ready. So we're first of all, UV index. Yeah. The number you need to know is 295 nanometers. That is where reptiles synthesize D3. Uh, for the for the UVB, that's, where, that's, the, that's the wavelength. UVB. When it comes to UVB output, I'm also going to tell you this. That's kind of funny. I spent, I've been researching UV and read more articles than I want to even tell you in many languages that I don't know how to speak just by yeah. Google Translate for seven weeks straight. Um, That's but, great, man. That's great. Yeah, but like, dude, they knew this stuff back in the 1940s and we still don't know it in the hobby, which is crazy to me. But um, when it comes to the UVB, there hasn't ever really been a study that I can find that t like follows around a bearded dragon in the wild and says, okay, he gets this much UVB, but he's only out for this much time on this rock. So That's we seven. calculate <laughs> this much and we multiply it. He has this many microwatts per square centimeter per hour and done that to figure out how much do they actually absorb over time that they're in the open absorbing it. And then how do we take that and stretch that out over a 12-hour period under a lower output? That's how, what we actually need to do to know what the UVB output is and actually have a scientific reason behind it. <laughs> well, I, as far as I know, and I, I could probably call Gary Bagnell from ZoomEd. He's the one that really – he's the inventor, basically, of UVB for reptiles and fluorescent tubes and stuff. So I, he, maybe he has some information back from, like, 1993 when they first came out. But, but I can't find it. So um, I think kind of what what also sort of happened is it was let's make one with some UVB. We know they need it. We know we can read it. At 12 inches, we're going to try 10 microwatts, 20 microwatts, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. And we're going to put them across a bunch of animals and then see where do we start seeing detrimental effects of hypocalcemia or hypercalcemia. And I I, I, I don't have any reason to, to, to note to say that that's what happened. I just, that's the only thing I can rationally think of of where we got to the numbers we got to. But generally, for tropical animals, at, you want to hit 25 microwatts per square centimeter at 12 inches. And for desert animals, you want to be at about 50. 50. You know, something that you mentioned as far as just somebody following around a bearded dragon out in the wild. I wish we had those type of studies over a long term, uh, yep. throughout the seasons, different years to study this kind of stuff. But unfortunately, we don't. Uh, an idea I, I wanted to do, I just, it, it takes a lot of time and money. It's just, um, you know, study to basically a clutch, half the clutch with things, half the clutch without. Yeah. And just to see for us what happens. And it's not, it's not even to prove a point to anybody. It's just, what can we learn from this? And of course that's yeah. captivity. That's not even the wild, but. Well, you and know, I've seen, I've seen that in like crested geckos. Uh, the Gilpins did a, uh, their own little study, man, years ago. They did different temperatures for incubating crested geckos, and they took all these measurements on the baby when they came out. And it was really, really cool to see, like, how many more days it took these cooler animals to hatch, but their tail base was thicker. The crests on their head were more developed. They were stockier, and they got going better. Like, it was just really interesting that, yeah, you can hatch them out at room temp. But if you go down to, like, three degrees below that, 
you actually get better, healthier animals. You know, so it's awesome to see that stuff. Yeah, I don't really incubate at uh, 86 and 87, 88, like people tell me to. I incubate like 83, 84-ish. I did even start at one point to do it at 81, but... Yeah, I, I didn't want to wait 210 days. <laughs> yeah. Dude, the, the peacocks that we hatched out, we had them at 83. And to me, it, it, again, it doesn't – if I'm hatching out bearded dragon eggs at 88, why would I think that the dirt they bury it in is the same as the dirt peacock monitors on Roddy Island, that's a tiny island in the Pacific Ocean? Why would I think that they have the same temperature dirt as a bearded dragon in the middle of the desert? Like yeah. – it just doesn't make sense. And I know people like to kind of standardize things, but we do that too much and we make things too simple. And yeah. while reptiles do have an ease to care for, they are easier than like a dog or a cat. To it an extent. Make think, yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't make you actually analyze that easier doesn't mean like non-existent care. It just means you don't have to scoop 27 pounds of crap every Friday afternoon. Yeah. Like, and you don't have to go for three walks a day and I don't have to go buy a big bag of food. Like it's easier in that regard, but there's still care there. Except um, for those retic keepers out there, they might have something to say about shoveling the poop, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as soon as one of them shows me a very well-defined muscular retic that has room to climb and be arboreal, like a wild one, then we'll have a discussion about that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. So, I love all my retic guys. I'm just saying, you know, Think about it. Uh, but, no, so, but otherwise, so the, so the numbers thing. If we, so UVB, you want to be at like 25 for tropical, 12 inches, or even if it, or like just 25 for tropical. We're at your basking spot. So if your basking spot's further away, you might end up actually using a desert bulb, and then you're going to measure until you hit about 25, and that's where you want that basking platform to be. Now, if you go desert, you want to hit about 50 microwatts per square centimeter. Again, those are that's what Zilla uses. Um, that's what I see a lot out there. And then with the reduced, with using Zilla lights for so long and the <laughs> coils, seeing the UVB outputs, seeing I, having all the data on them and, and all the other lighting companies, um, I just, I've really kind of hunkered into like, I don't know exactly how to, we got to that number, but it was, it's really, it makes sense and it makes sense for the animals and they do well on it so um, you use zilla compact bulbs instead yeah. of uh, instead of zoomed or another brand yeah so when i and this is not because <laughs> i've worked with zilla it's literally i, I to be totally a better honest, yeah it really is we we did they when i when i was well it was a year into working there um they did a, a an independent study with a company called bureau veritas which is known for doing very independent studies it, you don't get to pay them to make your bulbs say what you want it to like you pay them and then you cross your fingers that everything you did was right. And when it comes back, you don't look like an idiot. Like, so that's kind of how that went. But the whole thing was, Hey, can you guys take our coils, zoom ed coils, exoteric coils and test them all and then give us the results. And I got a stack of paper about that big back and me and our R and D guys went through it and we looked at what the outputs were. And to be totally honest, it was one of the first times in the hobby that it was like a punch in the chest. Cause I'm like some of these bulbs, are desert bulbs that don't put off out enough UVB for your animal to use. Um, yeah. And that's something I found with um, the Exoterra's bulbs, um, which was frustrating for me, especially because I, I used a lot of Exoterra, you know, coming into the hobby and their bulbs were always cheaper. So it was nice for an entry level person. But yeah. then after testing them, I, I, and my uh, wife being in the exotic veterinary field for 15 years, she's seen people who religiously change their bulb every six months still have hypocalcemia and MBD 
because they were using one of those bulbs. Um, Zubed's bulbs aren't bad, uh, but the Zoo, the, the Zilla bulbs do have a way higher output than any of the other ones. Um, now, the cages behind you is the bulb you're talking about. So, so that's th- these are actually. Do I have one sitting over here? Oh, these we got one <laughs> that explains to the listeners. Oh, yeah. So yeah. sorry, you guys that are listening. He's basically got a really dope setup behind him where these cages are really decked out. I can only see part of them, but um, from the bottom half, they're well lit. So, oh, yeah. so, um, you know. so what I did with these is I, I wanted to do more customizable lighting, and I didn't want to put a ton of, like, sockets in there. So Zilla came out with uh, – it's called the Pro Soul Fixture. It's a maybe six inches wide, one and a half inches tall. And it's got all of these are, uh, these are the 20 inches up here. Cause that's the 24 inch cage. That's all I could do. And all of the ones below are 30 inch, the two 30 inch fixtures next to each other. So that those spinulosis cages are six foot. That gives me six foot with 12 different sockets that I can put different heat UV plant lights. And I can totally create a gradient of lighting bright lighting, UV lighting, and, and heat from one end totally to the other. And I could just, by tweaking and moving things around, I can customize it to what exactly what I need it. Um, so that's what those are. Um, and then up there, they've got a 20-inch. And again, the 20-inch is four sockets, so I, I can mix around heat, night, heat, day. Um, and then they all have built-in timers. So these all just shut themselves off and on every day, and it's awesome. Um, and one thing I do like about the, the mini stuff was Zilla's mini stuff, the mini halogen bulbs, I, yeah, I can spray that whole fixture with a squirt with a hose i can take a hose and squirt it in the fixture and hit the bulbs and they won't break and they're six and they're like 500 degrees on the surface um so like that's a huge thing especially when you're talking monitors and indo and humidity you're the biggest thing with anybody using a mercury vapor or a metal halide is if a tiny microscopic bubble of mist touches that thing it's going to blow up (laughs) you know so like it's it's always like the cool there was 50 bucks i can just throwing it away appreciate that yeah. you know so like that sucks and then you've got glass everywhere you got to get out of the enclosure and that's one thing i like about the mini halogen um and then because these use the mini sockets i use the uh the smaller mini uvb bulbs so yeah. the cool thing with uv2 is that the bulbs that we have the more you add to an area they're not perfectly additive but it is additive so if you add if you have one bulb and you're hitting like 50 microwatts at 12 inches and you take another one and stick it next to it now you'll be hitting like 85 at 12 inches maybe do another one you hit like 110 like it'll it'll add so it's not just putting more space the closer they are together they actually add on to each other so you'll get more additive output um, and that's what all of these are because those outputs for those small bulbs aren't that it's not that high but I can put a ton of them in there and add them all together. And now I'm getting a really cool high hotspot, high area of high UV, less UV across it. I mean, I can change everything. And that's really what I liked about that. That's why I went with them. There are some setbacks to them. Like um, just having that fixture in there kind of always freaks me out. If they grab it, all my spinulosis think it's the greatest thing ever to get up onto the fixture, grab the (laughs) belt and just go boom and yank it out. So, and then they bury it or throw it in their water bowl. So I have to take it apart and let it dry out for two days and then go put it back in. And then they pull it back out again. And, you know, just that stuff. Um, or that they can like access the halogens. I left yeah. them open without a screen around them because yeah. with, because they're, if you guys have monitors, you guys are idiots, the dude. They're going to yeah. hang there. They're yeah. going to basically shoot a laser through their guts and then just die and cook stuck there. Like they just yeah. don't move. They just kind of zone yeah. out. And they're like, oh, I can smell myself cooking, but I really don't feel like moving. So 
So like, yeah. I didn't want to do that. I'm like, at least this case, if you go up and touch the bulb, you're going to get that insane hot burn like on your hand. Hopefully it's not, you didn't touch it long enough to hurt yourself and they won't touch it. It's not a slow burn. So that intense point, pointed heat, pointed pain, they sense that and they should, that should learn and they don't touch it. And that's happened. Like they don't, I don't have anybody with burns. I don't have anybody. They get close. They tongue flick at it. I think like the hair on the end of their tongue gets kind of close and they go, nope, not that. And then they find the other bulbs that aren't hot and they just yank all those out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, but that I made agree. it kind of nice. So, you know, I use the same setups, basically the, uh, the Zilla Pro Soles in a lot of my cages. A big reason for me going to that for the people that might be in California is we can't get regular incandescent light bulbs anymore. Um, you have mm. to, like, maybe I get my can, yeah, I, get <laughs> I can attest to, you doing some shady stuff just to get some light bulbs in here. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, got, I got guys in other states just uh, shipping me stuff. I mean, right. there's one bulb that uh, a thousandbulbs.com will send me, and it's a 40-watt par 38 still, and I love that bulb. It's like the perfect wattage perfect size and that's that's what i as and, you know that's my usage right and um there's they still send me those but man anything okay else? Then, then we're gonna edit that part out so i can get mine <laughs> and, and nobody uh, else throws <laughs> that up for you yeah no absolutely like i have people that are like dude you should come out to california and i'm like no, i'm good <laughs> yeah there's a no, i use those here. things here uh i get those g9 bulbs uh um, yep. i've been able to mess around with it now it has taken some messing around with absolutely um, and even even in these, I had to, dude. Like, yeah. I, I put in the same bulbs I would have on a glass tank in a PVC enclosure, and the heat, the insulation of that is yeah. – I, I almost turned that thing into a freaking oven. Yeah, I, those I little bulbs like, are strong. They're yeah. super strong. These cages are 2 by 2 by 3 and there's one 25-watt heat lamp in the top, and that's heating the whole thing. So does Zilla – so I know this is the company that makes it where you have to press it in, right? Yep, um, they're two uh, little prongs. Yep. Now, is uh, do they make a a, um, a bulb that you can? It's that that comes with a socket or no? They don't. You can you can buy a socket adapters for them um, if you find them online. But the the only thing that sucks about that is the reflector that's being used by the bulb massively changes the way that bulb works. Yeah. So if you use like the mini, the mini domes, yeah, that about has, the, the thing that, that connects well, yeah, to the, it, right? Well, it's, there's, there's multiple different fixtures that you could put this in. And if you were to take the screw and adapter and oh. say you had a dome, or if you're using an open socket and you put the screw and adapter and then plug that in, it's not going to be that effective below because it's not a spotlight. It's more like an old incandescent where it just pushes the heat everywhere. So you yeah. have to have a really good reflector to put that energy down. And with the mini domes that Zilla has, it's a mirrored parabolic reflector. It it intensifies that heat. It makes it two hundred and it's like two hundred and fifty eight percent more effective than the same wattage incandescent. But if you were to do that in these, you don't get nearly the same output because that's a gutter reflector and it moves the light around a lot differently. So, so what, what would you recommend for a setup like mine? Mine is our typical setup where it's a bank of lights. I would like to take out one bulb and screw in the uv bulb along those bank of lights what, yeah. what would be a good bulb that you that, that you recommend that's a coil bulb um essentially some enclosures i won't be able to hook up that's that's my case right now i have a couple enclosures that have the linear bulbs and then i have a couple that have a mega rays and those are just yeah. sold, like singular bulbs but uh, i'm looking to utilize 
these other cages that are aren't currently using UVB and just using heat, you know, I want to add uh, a compact bowl. What, what, what would you recommend possibly for like a eight to ten inch range different distance? For those guys, honestly, dude, the the, the Zilla Tropical 20, 20 watt twenty or you can even do the thirteen watt. The outputs actually aren't that different. Um, the okay. thirteen watt is probably good at at like you know you said like eight to ten inches be perfect. Yeah. Um, he said Zilla, right? And it, it screws yeah. into the socket? Okay. Yep, it's a screwing coil. Yeah. Um, don't right. do the canopy series that come in a box. You're going to want the ones that cut. They're the pro series that come in like a plastic clamshell. Those are the higher output ones. We put out another um, Zilla put, well, Zilla put out, we uh, put out another uh, bulb uh, a couple of years ago that we call it the canopy series. And that was more aimed at, we needed to get at a cheaper price point where people could access it better because the higher end ones just weren't doing well with entry level people. And they kept going to like the Exoterra or Amazon knockoff weird stuff that just was killing their pets. And so we needed one that was lower price, but still good enough. And that's what those canopy series are. So I kind of aimed it more at like, this is more for animals that are crepuscular or um, lower output type animals. Don't use this for your beardy, but you know, so those those are good bulbs, but not in a big enclosure like yours. That's a twenty long UV bulb, not a okay. two, four by four by eight UV bulb. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I'm using them for. I'm, I'm trying to use them for six and eight foot enclosures in in the bank of yep. in lights, lamps. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is if you can get like a piece of metal and curl it and put it around that bank, you'll intensify the outputs of every bulb you're using. Mm. So you can kind of create your own reflector to really solidify that lighting on their basking area, especially if you're doing like a platform, because you're yeah. losing a ton of light with the UV. You're going to lose a ton of light that's going sideways and up sideways. and everywhere else. But yeah. if you get that reflector in there, especially if it's like a polished metal or it's got like mylar where it's really reflective, you'll get insane UV outputs. Um, for example, if you take a standard dome and you put the Desert 50 Zilla in it, it's got a white painted interior, black outside. That white paint, you'll get 50 microwatts, 55 microwatts if it's a brand new bulb. You'll get 55 microwatts at 12 inches. If you put that in a polished silver dome, you'll get 260 microwatts at 12 inches. It insanely intensifies wow. by taking that's all beautiful. of that. It's taking all that lighting that's going off to the sides and getting absorbed by that white paint and reflecting it all back down. So you're, you're truly, if you use a bulb totally open, like in just in a screw and socket, or you use it in a white reflected or painted dome, you're only getting about 20% of what that bulb actually has for output. And just for the, uh, the new people out there that are listening to this, I started off, you know, you might go to a garage sale, pick up this, pick up that off of, you know, Facebook or wherever you're picking it up from. But these are little things that you might not be aware of that I had to kind of learn over time. Um, just as you said, Ryan, with the yeah. white paint on the inside, or different domes are going to react yeah. differently depending on how deep they are, how wide they are. So I've tried in my um, circumstance, I've tried to really standardize what I use so that I know what I'm messing with. You know, exactly. yeah, you know, you know what to expect. You know what to right. expect I, when you put it together. I'm trying to I'm trying to get a little ghetto rigged here, kind of like uh, MacGyver <laughs> this stuff. So, dude, you're a reptile uh, guy. Right. We all do it. We're all MacGyver. Yeah, yeah, right. So, cheap ass MacGyvers. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what, what I'm trying to do is wood taped where the bulbs are where that bulb is could uh just um aluminum tape taped dude, up dude. there oh yeah, yeah that'd be fine all right yeah that's like 
Drive around like and find somebody, scene, right? find, find somebody that's <laughs> chucking out a busted mirror and just take it and cut some panels off it. Like, literally yeah. anything. You just yeah. need to reflect light. Doesn't matter what you're using. Because that's, like that's what I'm trying to, to oh, see. Yeah, that'd be easy, dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, essentially what I've been doing is as I'm getting into breeding, and I haven't been really breeding monitors for like, you know, decades. I've been keeping them for a long time, but, you know, I've been only really catching them for the last few years, right? And so I was doing some of them well, and obviously you're, I only have so-so results. Like I'm not hatching out 100% hatch rate all the time. I'm only hatching out a few of those eggs or only a few eggs are coming out fertile rather than all eight to 10 eggs or something like that, right? right. And so I basically am trying to do better to get better results or do something different. Cause you know, at one point I was at the, I was at a point where I wasn't using UV at all, just, yep. you know, whole food prey items. And then, and then I started, you know, questioning my own husbandry, you know, also going, I'm trying to adopt everything that I can from the outside soil, you know, um, food, uh, humidity, heat, but why am I not adopting UV? Dude, right. it's it's so funny to me. You get these guys who are like, I built this room for my monitor, and it's a freaking jungle. There's trees planted in the ground, and it's like there's frogs everywhere, and it's literally like you're standing in the rainforest. And I'm like, dude, that's awesome. Where's the UV? And they're like, I don't really need it. Like, wait, yeah. you know the sun is an imperative part of the wild. The right. sun. And it's the only way you can get this lighting. So, you know, you're kind of not recreating your natural environment if you do it in a place where you're, you're taking the sun You're just it. missing the key aspects, you know. Exactly. And, you know, when, like, um, when, when you're looking at how they see UVA, dude, like, right. seriously, anybody listening, Google how bees see UVA. And if you take a look at how a bee or birds see each other, it's insanely different than what you see. It is. It's not like, oh, we see a red flower and they see like a pinkish one. It's we see a red flower with a white circle in it. looks like a bullseye. They see a yellow flower with black racing stripes. It's completely different how those animals see their environment. And that comes down to their food, their burrowing habits, the things they like, all that stuff. They're going to see their world differently. And if you're not putting that light in there, you're basically making them colorblind. And that also might have to do with a lot of animals and why – um, I was talking to this with some bird people because there's a lot of crossover with bird, especially with UV lighting. Um, like, why have I? We work. KT is part of the Central Garden and Pet, and we're cousin company to Zilla. And I was talking to some of their people, and I'm like, "If you put any of this food you're trying to put out there, like they're asking about different colors and what people thought, and like, did you put any of it under a UVA light?" And they're like, "Why?" And I'm like, "Well, it may look really colorful and like all fruity and amazing, and then you put it under a UV light, and it looks like a pile of rat crap." Like, it might just be brown and awful, like, and the birds might only pick through it and pick certain things out of their food because under, with no UVA lighting, that's the only, that's the least gross looking gray blob. Like, you know, so like there's a huge difference. And when you're not providing them with that, you're really not providing them with a natural environment or the ability to act naturally. Yeah. All right. Man, that's, that's great. Yeah, great way to put things. And Ryan was oh. talking about me, folks. I got a lot of things <laughs> set up. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's no it's no one's fault. I I think it's it's old information. What, yeah, right. And, and you and see, it, well, and both sides are both sides yeah. have success. You know, right. you see people you know show show results without using UV, and um, there's people that obviously are seeing 
positive results with it. I, I myself is are, are one of those people, and I'm kind of on both because I obviously have cages that still don't have UV, and I'm just you know still going with the diet, and I still have those animals reproductively cycle, still do the whole thing. Um, am I seeing better results with using UV in the eggs and such like that, and the animals' response to everything, its usage and all that? Yes. I definitely do yeah. see it though. You know, Anybody know. that wants like solid data on this difference, three year, two or three years ago, I was down at the Arlington show and uh, um, I was sitting there and it was really dead for a little bit at the NARBC. It's happening this weekend right now. I'm not there. I'm stuck in Illinois. Um, but but uh, no, that, that they, I was down there and over the intercom was, oh, this young 14 year old Grayson Offerman is going to talk about lychees and, Dude, with all the education and stuff I do, and like kids are that any kid that likes reptiles, dude, you're my new favorite. I don't care. Like <laughs> I'm all about. It. You want a lizard? I'll get you a lizard. You want tanks? I'll give you tanks. Whatever you need. You want to call me? You want my personal number? I don't care. I have like kids that call me all the time. I'm like yeah, that's how you set up your thing. Whatever. I want kids to be successful. Like that's the goal, right? So I'm, I'm, I heard that, and I'm like, that's kind of rad. This 14 year old kid's breeding leeches. So I talked to my my coworker who was at the booth, and I'm like, it's pretty dead. You care if I jump in there? She's like, no, whatever. So I went and watched his talk. Awesome talk, really knew his stuff, was having great success with his animals. And again, leeches, right, being something that it's they're nocturnal, they're a gecko, they don't need UV, that's stupid. Why would we do that? They never see blah, blah, all that crap. So I was so I went up to him afterwards and I was like, hey, you know, he didn't mention anything, but I'm like, Grayson, have you ever, ever used UVB on your on your leeches? And they're UV on your leeches. He's like, well, they don't really need it, they're nocturnal. And I'm like, so let me also explain to you that no reptile on the planet is totally nocturnal. Amphibians can be. Reptiles aren't. They're crepuscular, and they're they're they they hunt at night because their prey's out at night, and because it's not as hot at night in most of the places where they're at. But they're also out during the day when they're digesting their prey, and they need to bask, and they need a temperature gradient. And at night, there's no temperature gradient, and there's no UV, and there's no anything. So there is no nocturnal reptiles. Yeah. They're you know. So we'll start there. Anyway, but I'm like, but think about that. If they're crepuscular, or they come out during the day to bask, or hit a little bit of light, things like that. Don and does. Yeah, and, and yeah, crepuscular is out of dawn and dust. So they don't get high output UVB, but they don't need it because their skin is thinner and it doesn't reflect, like bearded dragons and iguanas, and especially high UV need animals, have uh, crystalline structures in their skin that reflect back a lot of the UV lighting. Otherwise, the they, yeah, and yeah. They, have, they have thicker skin and they have, they have structures in there to protect them. Because if you sit on a rock in the desert in Australia in the middle of the day in the summer and you're on it for more than eight nanoseconds, you're going to turn into jerky. So they have, like, they need to be able to not just get hammered with UV. Geckos don't have that. They have super thin skin. They absorb a lot of it from just dusk and dawn. So I talked to him about this, and I was like, look, here, Grayson, how about this? I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to set, I'm going to give you, come over to my booth. I'm going to give you a bunch of lights for free. I want you to take them home. And this next breeding season, I want you to raise this one set of, of babies with UV lighting and one set of babies without it. And then just anecdotally tell me what you see so so i did that right and then um not this last <coughs> october the year before when the last tinley that happened um he came up at the gecko symposium and i told uh, nathan hall i'm like dude grayson offerman he did this study and he told me about it he's like i kind of wrapped it all up dude he turned his 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 closet into a lab i mean he this he he had data he had micrometer measurements of tails and legs and i mean it was crazy he took this like I was like, just tell me if these ones seem more active and eat more or not. Like, just anecdotally write down some thoughts. And he's like, no. He made this, like, 
crazy study and just rocked it out. And he showed me some of this stuff, and I'm like, dude, this is rad what you found. It's a, I know I knew you'd find it. That's why I wanted you to do this. But I'm, it's really cool how you you know put all this stuff together. So I told Nathan Hall when he didn't want to do the gecko symposium, like, dude, you got to get this kid in. He's got this. He's got something that the whole gecko world needs to look at in here. Um, so he so he came and he does his talk, and I think you can find it through like Brian Cusco or something. Those those talks are available out there from the 2019 Gecko Symposium. Um, look for Grayson Offerman's talk. He what he ended up seeing is that with lychees, cresties, and a lot of those New Caledonian species, especially, they're never given UV, and they go through like they hatch, and there's like a two to three month period where they eat and they do well, but they don't really grow. They just kind of stagnate for a little bit. And then they start on this this curve that you can track that pretty pretty standard. They kind of they'll grow in a burst and then they plateau and then they burst and you can kind of track it pretty standard over their age. What he noticed was the ones that had UV lighting didn't have that two to three month lag. It cut the lag out and they started growing on that track the day they hatched. Mm-hmm. And a, a bigger part of it was those animals were noticing their food and eating a lot more food than the other ones. And that was the only difference. They were even in the same like greenhouse canopy thing so that all the humidity was the same, the temperatures were the same. The only difference was UV lighting. And those animals saw that difference because of that UV lighting. They recognized food and they ate their food more regularly. And then the other thing too, when you get UVA and you have an animal that like, Dude, tell me you do well when you're depressed as hell and you don't want to go outside and you don't want to talk to anybody. You're not really eating and doing real great. And if you're not getting that UVA for that serotonin, those animals are basically in a constant state of seasonal depression. But you give them that, now they see they're they're more active, they're more natural, they're out more, they're moving more, their body tone is better, they grow faster, they eat better. Like It's a ton of different stuff. And again... That's the UVA lighting that everybody doesn't know what it is or think it matters. And it's gigantically changes how those animals react to their environment. So like his talk literally laid out these graphs, all the data laid out. And it was kind of, it wasn't like in a lab, but he put dang close with what he did, but it was all real measured data. And his dad's an exotic veterinarian. Um, so like they really took it seriously and it was incredible. He ended up putting UV on all of his geckos just because it was a massive difference, especially in the hatchlings with how quickly they grew. And that's stuff yeah. that you see with that kind of thing. That's why like, dude, there's nothing that doesn't need UV. I put UV on everything, everything. There's nothing in my house that doesn't have UV on it. So let me, for, for the listeners out there and um, even that talk that I had originally had with you on the phone. Yeah. I said, Hey, explain that. Cause I mean, unfortunately with, uh, Facebook, social media, you know, we, we divide into camps and a lot of times I'm not trying to get in a camp. I just want things to make sense to me. Right. Know? And so, um, I, there's a little back and forth over the years, not between me and you, but, uh, right. with other people about you must do this. Okay. Why? Because Frank Reed said so. Or yeah, somebody some else dude said from so. 1985 that hatched him, and he does a lot of stuff. He does it that way. He still does yeah. it the same way he did it in 1985, and he has great success. But you know what? I don't use. You can still use the same cell phone you had in 1985, and you can still call people, but you're not going to appreciate it that freaking much. Like, yeah. <laughs> their technology changes. Our knowledge changes. Like, we should yeah. always be trying to learn more. And, yeah, that's where this UV thing starts to make all the problems is because the camps are, we've been doing it this way and it works. Why would we change it? Versus 
we now know more and we have better technology and we're able to do more. Why don't you want to? Yeah. Right. And well, to be honest, that's where, thinking, where I got thinking differently. Like, yeah. Yeah. Where I got into this was okay. Because of the past history, kind of the, the mentality of this is how you get to the dance, you know, yeah. this has been shown to work. So this is where I started basically right. now. Um, and you mentioned it. There were some bad bulbs that came out at one yep, point. Yeah. Would you say that in the past, as we've gone along this progression in technology and lighting, has there been some bad science along the way? I wouldn't say there's honestly been much for bad science. There's been there's a there's actually an enormous amount of science on UV and reptiles. Like anybody who doesn't have Google Scholar saved in their like top bar of their of their their browser needs to. Like, don't ask me for a care sheet. Don't ask me how to take care of something. What I'm going to tell you is go get the seasonal data from the place they come from and match that. Then I'm going to tell you to go on Google Scholar and and type in the Latin name of the species and start reading. Start looking at what are the gut contents of that animal in the wild when it was found or when it was actually discovered. To do like a dictionary's work. (laughs) I know, right? Like go, go. Like here's here's what kills me with the hobby right now too is the the idea of like. I just need a care sheet. I'm like, dude, if you think I can tell you how to successfully keep, breed, and keep healthy and active and happy any animal on one page, you're an idiot. On one page, I I can tell you how not to kill it, but that's the best I can do. You won't kill it right away, but that's the best I'm going to get you. Like, Some people right. ask me for um, like you know how do you uh, how do you keep breeding? I'm like yo, I, I apologize, I just can't tell you that in one conversation. <laughs> right. Well, and the other thing too is breeders need to look at this differently too. How I set up my snakes to breed in tubs isn't how I should sell them to someone who's like, this is going to be my first snake. You tell yeah. them, yeah, you put it in a tub that's dark and you don't see it. And then you put it under your bed and you can just hide it there all the time and take it out when you want it. And guess what? <laughs> that kid forgets he has a snake. And when he goes to take it out, it's not as active as it was because it's crispy. Like right. you yeah. need to tell him, like, do this. Enjoy it. See all the active. Get him excited about it and get him yeah. on the right path right away. But, yeah, no, that's it's it's this mentality that everything has to be cheap and quick and easy. Um, and with the hobby, it's not bad science, it's laziness. And I'll say it and I don't care. It's laziness. Yeah. It's, we did it that way. It works that way. So we're going to keep doing it that way. Even though there's, there's science and stuff that, and a million examples that prove that you know, this is bad. Keep keeping it onto monitors. Uh, like, you know, there, there are a fair amount of species that are, that are done. You know, a lot of the Salvador species, um, a lot of the Australian species, not all of them, but most of them. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, But there are many Indonesian species and African species that aren't regularly done. And it's it's yeah. there's people that have adults. There's people that have, um, you know, that are trying. And it's not like people aren't trying. There are a lot of people that are actually putting forth and buying groups of animals. I know people that have dozens of roughnecks and, and pairs of Niles. And, you know, people are really trying. But... It, it's not that easy and so right we're trying to really unlock those species more now um and now i guess it's like a great great time to transition into the second part of the conversation with our indo species you know um you know some of them are are, are as easy as heat them and feed them but not not all of them really just take to that where right um, they're just going to be uh 
you're just going to pound it with food and you know when they breathe she's going to lay and that's that it's just like that it's it's not that easy where um just the whole stressful scenario of the animal comes into play but um you know like we, we talk about acclimating and and really getting them good with being in captivity and being able to um show us signs without being freaked out too much right or frantic and stuff like that right and yeah. um yeah, go no, go ahead. No, I was gonna say like it's there's there's so many things that that we're, we're I think against the Indo species, but there's a lot of stuff that's causing them to be a bigger um, um, focus. You in particular are one of the reasons they're getting a better focus is because people are seeing somebody have continuous success with what they're doing and paying attention and continuously hatching mangroves. That's awesome. There's a dude in Central Illinois that continuously hatches out melanus that's awesome like there's people who are doing it and then i think what 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 stopped that from happening in the first place is indo is always cheap imports and so is africa so there's no value there but now that there's value people are looking at it like the peacock monitors do i used to get them for 50 bucks they were just like this it was the same as a water or anything else nobody cared five dollar lizard yeah now i I hit up a guy that had a pair up the other day and he's like i want 1800 and i'm like i'm like i need to just sell them if the more i feel like i'm in the stock market and i just won and i'm gonna hold on to him too long but i like him too much and i don't care about the value but no but it's like (laughs) now it's hard but that whole thing happened because now we can't get them anymore and now people want them and they want to breed them. But the problem is they're also not, there's this mentality of, okay, the monitor guys, yeah. Brandon Shiflet is the guy for Australian Odatria. <laughs> you want rare, you go to rare earth for any, his dude, he builds zoological enclosures in his basement. It's yeah. unreal. He could, he knows more about those animals than anybody I've ever met. Yeah. And, his, his insight has helped me so much and it's, Okay, like, um, well, what would be a normal um, suggestion would be 65, seven, like 65 is the lowest, right? 75 is what you kind of want to have your cool side. You know, he actually uh, mentioned that his are taking 40s and 50s without a problem. And yeah. I sent mine into that this last winter, and they're almost unstoppable now. Yeah, and, I want to um, more You know, I really sure. am doing stuff that is – a little bit different um same thing with my mangroves i'm not keeping them so hot and feeding them a ton it's more so of now i guess i we can get into our indoor species is i prepare them months in advance to when i really want them to breed so it's not just about all right i'm gonna I'm a kick gear i'm gonna kick your stuff into gear now and we're, we're gonna start feeding you a ton or something like that it's actually the whole maintenance feeding and taking it all down, whatever they were, yep. um, whatever they were eating and stuff like that. I'm really taking them down, keeping their their muscle mass and water weight still, but I'm not feeding them a ton. It's very very small fragments of stuff, right? Now, let's say if in the southern atmosphere, they're going to start breeding August, October, November, December, you know, January, February, stuff like that, right? That whole the southern the southern hemisphere is going to be breeding in that time, um, and you can see it now so many people in the last few months have had their monitors lay for them it's just yep. it's just normal now and now what you're trying to do is you want to take that into account right and so that's what i've taken is um alex mentioned to me it's it is okay to do uh, your 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 normal thing and pinpoint it and but you just have to really work against the weather what i was doing was not really working against the weather so much and um he just mentioned to me that you can follow the southern hemisphere, and that's 
sort of when they would breed. So I would have a lot of my stuff already paired up together. Now, some of them would be really fat and some of them would just, they would be paired up right during yeah. that time. Now, I wasn't really getting success unless it was animals that were super lean. Then when they went into that whole period, it was now they're getting their fat reserves and, and going through the cycling period and stuff like that, right? Getting into gear. Um, I now have to prepare in the summertime or even it, end of spring, summer, getting prepared for what's coming in fall and wintertime for me. Oh, yeah. um, so months and months of really maintenance feeding, making sure that they're not overfed. And, and my animals throw me off all the time because I pinpoint it for this this winter right for me to be breeding but they'll be breeding in all of a sudden again in april and summertime too this last year was a really throw off for me because they just kept on kind of going some of them kept on kind of going right yeah and um they were animals that i wasn't really feeding a ton um i was purposely trying not to and whenever they would get fed man they would just throw that into usage and um really get into gear so you know i, I think you guys are currently at a at a halt with all of your peacocks right and i think i think right. between the two yep. of you between the two of you you guys have like 30 animals yeah. so you know i would like I, I talked about this before and um you know it's it's what a a, a, a keeper and a mentor is, is always mentioned to me because i got so much going on now i have to be really strict with the monitors um their diet you know their 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 humidity and stuff like that so you know if you're getting into gear now because summer's a blink of an eye away you know yep. summer's really only about two months three months away yeah. right really and so your preparation time is then yeah and because your, your breeding time is is right is right after that corner so you only have a few months to really play with or more so of slack on so I really hope you don't slack on and be strict with it because I know you might have a lot of stuff going on and things like that, right? And, um, you know, there's there's so many animals and you just want to really pay attention to these guys. But if you can start now, now is their pumping season. You're going to pump oh, yeah. them as much as you can, right? You're going to pump them as, as much as you can to get as much weight on them because that whole drought period with less food coming into, uh, aug coming into August, right? Things like that, you'll – when you're into summer, maybe midsummer, you can really get down to the point of not feeding so much. The temperature outside is going to be really hot, so you may not want to use a ton of heat. And the 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 ambient heat will just have them just enough, you know. Yeah. Um, but that that whole time of maintenance feeding, very little food, you're taking whatever you used to drench them with, and it's now just like fifty percent humidity. It's no longer major spikes, right? Yep. And for those few months you're you're doing it like that it's basically drier um less food less amounts of dense you know just all that is just much less yeah and you're gonna do those for a few months but once you get into those cooler weathers and the summers where animals would normally be breeding in the southern hemisphere that's where you kick up again yeah and that's so, that's what we started doing with all of our endo stuff like all yeah. of my i I was, I was telling Alan, for the, I've been trying to breed my Savu pythons for 12 years. And I've got, for the first time ever, I've gotten breeding the last five, six years. I just can't get eggs, and I couldn't figure out why. So I started tweaking some stuff this year and changed up a couple things that I was doing. And I have one for sure gravid female. Um, and mm -hmm. one other one that I'm pretty sure is. Um, and then my Maclots and like a lot of the Indo stuff I was working with, 
it made a big difference. So we've been doing the same with the monitors. Plus, like, I, if you saw my, like, it, most people, if they saw, I've got some peacocks in a bin. Like, if you saw them, like, pe- people looked at my stuff, they'd be like, dude, it's skinny. It's not. It's tail base yeah. is big and fat and thick, but it's lean because Ooh. giant fat animals don't breed well. You know, or they get egg bound or they're awful or that like I just I want lean, natural animals. You don't find that in the wild. Like, so, yeah, so my animals are lean. And then, yeah, coming into like coming up to the end towards the mid end of summer, I'll just start everything in this back room just starts getting hammered. So I slow feed them all year, maintenance feed them. They all are pretty thin, but they have good musculature. They look good. Um, And then as soon as, yeah, come in a couple months and even my tanks now, they're pretty dry. I only hit the misting system like once or twice a week. You know, I'll yeah. dig down in the dirt and make sure there's some humidity down there. And if it's pretty humid, right. that's why I like this tank looks decent, but the rest of them are starting to look crappy because the plants are dying <laughs> off because it's just hot and yeah. dry, you know? So like, but that's, yeah. And that's what I'm doing like this weekend. Part of my list of stuff to do is um, get my RO system all set up so I can get the, not so I can get more reliable on pumping all this water and all this other stuff getting ready for that season to come. So and I'm hoping this year ends up being a really good year for us because we've kind of gotten it dialed down and, COVID made a big difference with my monitor keeping because yeah, my desk is on the other side of this computer. Like I'm sitting out here in the middle of the room, but like my desk's over here. So they're right there. And my, all of my spinulosis know the difference between me and everyone else in my family. And when I sit down at my desk and my hands touch my computer, they start scratching the glass, like nails <laughs> on a chalkboard. And it's just and smacking like their tails and like flinging dirt and running all, they're totally calm and quiet all day till my hands touch the keyboard and then they just start getting loud and annoying and they won't stop. And I'll be on meetings and people just hear smack. So I get pissed off and go feed them a ton. So they're fat and they sit out and bask and then they shut up for the next three days. So they (laughs) learned that during COVID and now when they're hungry, they scrape on the glass. I'm like, you guys suck so bad. (laughs) But another thing too is like with, with people is finding food, like dude, that's the other thing with 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 uh, monitors and captivity is nutrition. Rodents are crap. They're crap food for everything. They're they're ma- they're they're good, but they're literally manufactured to be per, like food. Per, just it's it. Rodent breeding in the U.S. is just for production. They don't ma- they don't breed rodents for nutritional value. They breed them to get as many as they can, as fast as they can, and sell them as quick as they can. So they're super fat. They're a lot of their levels are off they're not really what you'd want like what you'd see out of a wild animal that had a wide range of food and they're just fat super fat so that's why retics in captivity are all over and fat and huge tons of snakes are fat and huge monitors are always obese i we rarely get skinny monitors into the rescue we get way more morbidly obese monitors that we spend we feed once a month for six months and make them swim in the tub for an 20 minutes every other day and it takes that long just to get them to a point where their belly gets off the ground like it's people feed them wrong and, and then they're just feeding one thing like i have meat i'm just gonna do rodents dude we go down to we've got a place down here like a there's, there's always a local market somewhere we've got a, a, a grocery store called fresh farms and they have like 80 feet of fresh seafood like i can buy a whole shark like, so we're, we're by, like, I'll go, like, I get, like, salmon bellies and all the random scraps that they do for a lot of the different, uh, like, ethnicities that live around us and cook with all these different pieces of the animal. Like, I grab all that cheap scraps and we get, like, you know, salmon bellies are awesome. They're fatty. There's a ton of fish oil in it, ton of vitamin E. It's really good for their skin. And then I'll grab, like, 
ton of shrimp. I've got just all this random stuff, like chunks of squid. We got whole crabs to give to our uh, some of our caimans because they eat whole mollusks, so they can bash the crap out of them. And like, yeah, we didn't yeah, anything. Use, I use a lot of those diets now for my stuff. It used to be just like mice was the primary and. Yep. Um, rats and then also uh, like then chicks and stuff like that right but now it's uh mice are at the least of what i yeah. feed i still do it here and there but it's uh like chicks quail and i, I use uh crawfish and small crabs and things like that much more often now yeah they can still eat shrimp. a lot yeah they yeah. can still eat a lot but it, it's basically keeping them lean still just because the diet itself and the calcium intake is great on those yeah, absolutely. And that's the nice thing with anything that's got an exoskeleton. Like, that's the other thing. People don't realize that the majority of these monitors are insectivores, even when they get bigger than you'd think they'd be insectivores. Or in Indo, they're eating, they're not, there's not, in Indonesia, I mean, obviously there's a ton of animals, but there's not like free roaming herds of mice. Like, yeah. they're small rodents, but they're, it's not like when you feed them in captivity and they get it on a plate. Like, that's a fast animal that can get into a crevice quicker than you can. Dude, they go after frogs and fish on the bank, and they eat lizards and crab, like, stuff that they can pin down and grab and get into a corner. Like, that's what they're eating. They're not, and birds, birds, eggs up in trees. They're not chasing down tiny little rodents underground. Like, that's not what they're going to do. That's not what's openly available. So these animals will eat a ton. They can get really big. They can stretch out. They've got all the lateral skin on their body and their necks to stretch out fat the big meal, but that big meal is super, super lean. That's like fish or shrimp or, you know, a lizard that has literally almost no fat content or, you know, like same thing with some of the tree frogs, like they're going to have almost no fat. So yeah. they're eating a ton, but they're just getting like their proteins and a bunch of vitamins and acids. You're not getting a ton of fat content, but then when you're feeding rodents, it's like, it's other good proteins and vitamins and stuff, but it also is a ton of fat. Yeah. Hey, uh, excuse me for one second, all right, you guys? I'll be yeah, right back. No worries. Yeah, I got it. You know, it's funny. I There's a few animals, though, that I have that I can't get to take a second look at any kind of insect. And uh, so I have a female cross uh, sand monitor. She's that way. Now, the, the yeah. male, he's, he's like almost twice the size as her. He'll chase down a little medium-sized cricket all over the cage, you know? He's, yep. he's a nut for him. It's kind of fun. But um, and then again with the the Indo dwarf species, I their food for me is so hit and miss. It's like I can offer one thing one day, yeah, and they they eat it up, and then I can offer it the next week, and they won't touch it. And that's all my peacocks are like that, dude, and it yeah. kills me because a lot of the stuff when you're doing like shrimp and fish and like <laughs> frozen thawed pinky mice or something for, and you leave it in the tank so that yeah. because they're all so shy too. Like right. I have to put it in the back of the enclosure and then leave or they, and, and then I come back in 20 minutes. I haven't heard anything. I haven't seen them, but the food's gone. Like, right. you know, so I know they're eating it, but like, and then they don't, and you don't go touch it right away. I leave it overnight a lot of times. And yep. then I go in the next day and I'm like, Oh, cool. That was uh, all those mice just melted into a really pretty colorful puddle. And it smells <laughs> great. You know, like, or that fish just melted into goo. Like, oh, I have those talks with them. I'm like, you guys got to stop doing this to me. Right? Start paying rent. One or the yeah, other. Exactly. <laughs> like, guys, come on. Like, what is your thing? But, like, that's where, that's honestly where, like, going down to some of those markets and getting a ton of random crap. Like, we get quail eggs. We get frog legs are a huge one. Dude, you want yeah. everything likes frog legs. 
Um, and shrimp has been a big one. Yeah, so I've spent about $100 down at the Asian market. I got shrimp, uh, fish, um, frog legs, a different type of fish, squid, some... Uh, some type of crab that I haven't seen before. You know, look at look and find. Sometimes you can find frozen uh, locusts in there. Like Arlo, one of the ones in Milwaukee, were up by the uh, work when I was up there. I go to that one. It had you could get like trays of frozen, giant ass frozen locusts. Yeah. Like so that was pretty cool because like, you know, you don't have access to that until somebody started doing it. But <laughs> but even then, like, still don't have that much access to it unless you do it yourself. So. Like, that was kind of a cool option, too. And there's always weird crap. Like, as long as it's not processed and it's raw and, like, you know what it is, right. like, make sure you're pretty close. Like, don't try and do, like, blowfish because you think it'll be funny and just assume that they didn't hit that poisonous <laughs> vein. Like, you know, don't be stupid. But, like, if it's in the section it doesn't have a warning on it, like, try it. See if they like it. If they do, great. If they don't, whatever. And variety is key with those guys. They, yeah. you know, variety and lean and lean more toward, towards white meat and fish rather than red meat. They don't do mammals. They Whoa. don't eat that much for mammals. They don't eat red meat. It's all fish and amphibians and birds and lean. Yeah, I've always noticed my guys get this, uh, this ugly bloated feeling after I've actually fed them like a piece of steak, you know? Yep. Yeah, I even got. I was feeding. I was feeding uh, all the monitors uh, tilapia pieces. I caught up a whole bunch of tilapia. They were going to town, and then they got like, dude, they were fat. They ate till they wouldn't anymore. And that's what I do. Like yeah. one, twice a week. Once a week, I'll go. Like you know, if it's bulk time, it's more more often. But it's like once a week, I go in there and I just hammer them with something, blow them all up, and then that's they're good for the week. And that's the maintenance, yeah. you know, throughout the year. And then and it's really lean, so they. You know, they go down skinny real quick, and then they're nice and muscular. Um, but, like, dude, it's – yeah, they, they just uh, – so I ended up taking some of that, that fish, and I, I went to some of my baby snakes, and I'm like, it can't hurt. I wonder if they'd eat a fish chunk. All of my pythons ate fish, raw fish chunks out of the tarns. All of them. have never smelled fish in their life, and they were like, I'll eat – and my Roma python ate four pieces of fish. So, I'm like, <laughs> so I'm like, I, like, this is – I'm just started thinking about that, and I'm like – I'm just going to start feeding everything weird crap. Like, I'm just going to walk yeah. away from rodents to an extent almost. Like, it's the staple. I have to stick with it. But, like, yeah. I'm trying to get some more cool stuff in there. And by with the snakes, pound? it can get rough, you know? By oh, yeah. pound, um, seafood is such much more affordable right. by the pound. Like, you can get shrimp, you know, uh, I don't know. If you're looking at actual pieces and, you know, that are palm size or a few inches worthy of a monitor lizard meal, right? Um, comparable to a mouse, I guess you would say, you know, um, you can get so much more shrimp for just seven bucks. Oh, right. Like, <laughs> six dollars. It's probably, I bet each decent sized <laughs> yeah. shrimp I buy in like a bag that's like, I'm not lucky enough to be on the coast and I'm not buying shrimp that's in Chicago. So um, <laughs> that's not as fresh as you guys get it. Sorry. So, so like, I have to buy the package crap, but still, even then, like, I'm getting you're paying like 50 cents a shrimp and that's a decent sized meal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other nice thing is for us, like I was saying, like I get the scrap stuff that's cheap and crappy and nobody wants it because yeah, they yeah. love it. And it's all the nutrition is in the scrap. Like all the yeah. organs, like when we cook a chicken, I'll pull the gizzards and the, when that, that little package out, that goes right into a cup for the monitors. Cause that is a ton of crap that I don't want to eat. And it's gross, but it's the most nutritional stuff in that bird, you know? Yeah. So it's great for them. So don't get your shrimp gross and uncleaned and you know you not how you'd eat them because that's good for them yeah 
You know, I, I um, it's funny we're talking about all this stuff, but well, maybe I maybe I should save that. Let, let's continue on. The, I'll, <laughs> I'll come back to this, but um, continuing on diet stuff and uh, um, hitting up those Asian markets. I have yet to try some of the stuff we've been talking about. It just hasn't <laughs> yeah, fit I mean, in yet. I've, yeah, I'm still yeah. cycling through some other food. But, uh, oh, right, dude. I've got I think I have like ten pounds of smelt still in my freezer, and like yeah. working through that. Like I just I cut it up into little chunks and I've been tong feeding them because I'm start I'm working with trying to get them. I'm sick of chasing spinelosis through my house. So I'm just trying to get them to like I'm gonna open the door, but it's a good thing, guys. Like this is cool. Come over here and I'll give you some food. And we're just gonna interact a little bit and it's gonna be a good experience. And I'm gonna slide the door shut and you're gonna be cool. Rather than I slide it open and it's it's like trying to catch rockets and then one of them shoots <laughs> past you. Yeah, and I'm like, you know yeah. what? Yeah, so now they all, like, I've got the one that's in this cage right here down by me. He, I can get him to walk out onto my arm and take it out of the tongs. And then once he ta- he grabs it, and he runs back into the cage, and he goes in the back corner, and he, like, eats it and watches yeah. me through a crack. And then I'll wiggle another piece of food, and he'll, like, come back out and walk back up my arm. Yeah, but, yeah. like, and that's the fun part. That's what I, that's one of the biggest things I love about, you know, the, the monitors. And, and that's where me and Erica nerd out with the Varanids and the Crocodilians is, that that intelligence yeah. and that interaction yeah. like our crocs are target trained and they still hate me and they love her but they're target trained so at least when they're bigger i won't die hopefully uh, <laughs> like the I'm monitors same thing yeah right no like i got i got some of like i've gotten animals that were dreams of mine to have that i'd seen in books as kids that i never even sure. saw in person and i've been able to acquire them you know and, sure. and have them and then i bring them in and i'm like Opening this container is like the the pinnacle of my life in this hobby. And then I open the container and it hates me. And then my wife picks it up and then it's like, mom, you're cool. cool." I'm like, that's cool. And then I go to the cage and then like our our African dwarf crocodile is right behind my my desk. And all it does all day is stare at me. And if I look at it, it jumps out and hits the glass. And then she comes over and he just kind of trots over and she puts her hand down and he walks right onto it. And then I you, made the, you made the bad experiences. You probably yeah, had right? first stuff. Yeah, no, but like, and then I put my hand out, and he came over and looked at my hand and just went and just bit it. <laughs> like, Dude, it's my a monitors won't breed. Platform. Yeah, my monitors won't breed in front of me, but my lady, she'll walk into the thing and she shows me all the pictures. Like, hey, look, look what I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah, that like, what? like whatever. I don't care. Screw you. Yeah. I, that yeah. snake likes me more. Yeah, my yeah, lady's a mom. She's more of a keeper than me. <laughs> Yeah, Ali is more of a keeper than me, man. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I get it. Like, nah, but yeah, I mean, the diet, that, like all this stuff, that's, that's what makes it fun. And that interaction is what makes it fun for me. And I've been doing that with the baby peacocks that were growing up that we hatched this year. Um, I've been yeah. tongue feeding them. And part of that, part of that with them was more, and why we're trying to work with our peacocks more is I, I've had, like, they're all wild caught, except for the ones I hatched, and I think I've got a couple other that were captive hatched. But the majority of the ones we have are, that I have, are the, or me and Eric have, we have here, are the wild caught ones. Same with most people. Um, and, mm-hmm. like, it's, they're so shy. <laughs> and they yeah. hide constantly, and they don't come out, and they don't let you see them. If, yeah. if I'm 20 feet away from these cages and they see me, they drop off the log into a bush, and they're gone. And that's... Yeah. It's every time, and I can I can I've been able to get like within ten feet and zoom in with a camera to like see <laughs> Those that, bump on that the bump zoom on the in. stick. Yeah, that bump yeah. on the stick that has a point on it is his face. Isn't that a cool lizard? The the, the spike on the stick that you can't identify at all. Um, yeah, but like so I, I was. But then but then you I had I had a I had a I was sitting at my desk. I looked over and down here I've got a big trio of them. 
Um, and the male was out and he was like tweaking all over this girl, this, this female. And I'm like, Oh, cool. He's, he's, he's getting all ready for it. And it was about time. And I'm like, cool. So I kind of snuck around the corner and peeked and the female had passed away and he was just a little necrophiliac and being real creepy. Ooh. Um, yeah. Oh no, he was all about her and she, and this was not, and like, this wasn't a recent pass away because, and I felt bad, but because they're so shy, I four right. in there. I see them pretty. I see them once in a while. I assume they're okay. I can pretty much distinguish which the ones they are, but the two of the three females look identical. So I saw them out all the time, and I'm like, yeah, they're fine. And nothing smelled. Nothing was weird. None of them looked bad at any point ever. So there was never a reason I would have thought I needed to go dig one up. And I don't want right. to mess with them because they've got their pheromones and their territories, and I don't want to screw with it. So, yeah. so when I looked in there, I was just like, I was so mad. And I was so frustrated that we didn't we didn't see it. We didn't even know it happened. And Yo, you how, know, how often do you mail swap? Um, not too often yet. But that's one of the things we're gonna be. I want to do this year is I actually I was actually looking at potentially uh, linking all of these cages together and cutting holes through them and just letting them have a free for all and just watch the males to see if they fight and if they don't and they just get territorial. That's even better. That's even better. Right. I hope they get yeah. pissed off at each other. Just don't right. kill each other, but be angry. Yeah. Like right. I'm thinking and, uh, along the same lines. Some of that, uh, some of that makes uh, makes the whole process go. Yeah. You know? um, I think the females get excited as well. And yeah. The females know too. Um, now, male combat is important, dude, for especially for going, a lot of stuff. Right now, going back to, do you ever notice your girls just uh, utilize your nesting options, and what what are you using for nesting options? Um, so I, I've got a bunch of different stuff. Um, I've got in, in, I can move and you guys can see it, but in this enclosure, just got a big bin, oh, see the nest bin? Yeah, just the nest okay. bin hole in the side, deep dirt inside moss, bunch of crap mixed together. Um, and then like for the peacocks, um, these two enclosures just have a little humid hide in it and that's it. Um, they can use it, but it's also really deep dirt and there's a lot of stuff all over. So they can kind of utilize anywhere they want. Um, and then this one, Hold on, no, this one, it's these two, they're like that. This one over here has, uh, I took PVC tubes and I cut a door in them and hinged it and locked it and then cut a hole and capped the ends and then uh, nice. treated the outside with a bunch of uh, silicone and sprays and stuff and, and like dirt and crap. And so I could sink it in. It kind of looks like a, a hole in a log. And then I kind of put that in the back and I buried them. And I buried a couple throughout where yeah. the hole has like a cork bark down into it into the ground and then it's tipped up a little bit where I can just move away some dirt, open up the door, check in it, lock it back up and cover it up again. Um, so I've got those options. They, the, the female that laid those eggs laid them outside of that literally right next to it. She dug down to lay them against it. Huh. it. The same dirt was on the inside. So I'm like, whatever. Found them. But yeah. like, so one other thing I was talking about with Alan earlier was one of the things I need, I'm working on now is because I've got six different groups of them not including yeah. the babies, six groups of adults. I'm going to start tweaking a little bit of what we're doing because they're all healthy and they're doing well. Um, I'm cycling, I'm going to see some breeding, and I'm not getting the results I really want. So I want to start tweaking it a little bit. And when I start getting these wild-caught animals, I deck them out. I want them to be very, very, like, secure. I want them to be able to hide. I don't care if they're crazy and they, they I never see them. I want them to be like that. I want them to take as much time as they can to recover, fatten up, you know, be able to handle the stress from medications and things like that. I want them to be able to just disappear. 
And then after yeah. about, it, it takes about generally with a, any wild caught uh, herp tile, you're looking at about three years in captivity before they really start to just get into the groove of captivity, seeing you, knowing you're not a threat, dealing, being more interactive, being out more, just before they start to kind of settle in. And you'll see it earlier than that with some individual animals, but in general, it's usually two to three years. So I take that two to three years, even with adult animals, I don't try and breed them. I don't cycle them. I just try and get them medicated, get them clean, get them healthy, get them muscular, get them lean, having some good weight, and making sure that they're interactive and any issues they had are cleared up. And then after that, right now is where I'm hitting that with a couple of the newer groups. Um, so I'm going to start taking out a lot of the dirt and doing a lot thinner layer um, that they can't burrow in as much either. Because I don't know if you see this with your peacocks. They are super subterranean. Every yeah. single one of these enclosures has the most – it's like a rodent lives in there underneath yeah. the dirt. There's yeah. tunnels everywhere. Um, so they utilize it a lot. And I'm like, I'm never going to find eggs unless I literally dig every one of these enclosures completely up every time and yeah, so I designate started... everything right how, how, so you, you have uh so currently i have everything designated but what i also found helps right everything um all right picture that the ground right um there's obviously the actual very base of the cage and then there's a soil amount you know but um all the items are aren't touching the soil at all actually everything is suspended up like you can use like jungle vine or whatever or i don't know some type of brace right but most yeah. of my hanging stuff is uh completely suspended and nothing where I, it's like i have to rip the bottom and i have to take off this log it's more so if, if i wanted to just go i'll be able to move that adjust that log a little bit with my hand because it's it's currently being hung from the ceiling yeah. Or, or or a vertical wall, right? So ease of access. So, yeah. so the ease of access for me is just to maneuver with my hand, dig in the back very far if I need to without having to rip up stuff. Now, I will have a couple buried logs or, you know, designated tubes that are the yep. structural support for the for the thing. And that's what I'm going to be looking at mostly. But if there – I just don't have a ton of stuff that – more so complicates things for me you know right it's and, it, but it is it is four inches right above that or six inches right above the actual ground level it's just not touching the ground well and that's so, kind of where i'm going with with these is, is well yeah. i still want dirt down there i still want to be able to have humidity i'll probably throw yeah. some isopods and crap in there just to deal with the you know droppings or whatever um and right. then the plants that are in there i like having live plants and the the cool thing is peacocks and like timorensis are known for sitting out on palm leaves and basking. So that's why I got a bunch of little palms and things like that. But I'm just going to, instead, I'm just going to do pots like they usually would be. I know that that's a potential designated area there they dig, but because the plants in there and how a pot is, I'm going to know if she dug in it, you know, or she's yeah, going to fling nice. dirt off the edge. I'll know she was in it. And then the other one will either be one of those, a couple of those tubes in different, you know, avenues or a box or some designated area where it's like, it's really secure. And again, like, I wanted it where it wasn't easy to find them at first, but now that I've gotten through that and they're into everything and now it's like, now I'm comfortable. I don't want to dig a ton of soil. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm comfortable getting you to like, I'm going to tweak the habitat a little bit. Yeah, a lot of these, like the bark and the, you know, uh, the logs and stuff are all going to get screwed higher and mounted. Yeah. Same thing. So the bottom will be just for me to put, you know, pots and set stuff and there'll be a little bit of dirt so that it's not just nothing. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to, that's going to be one of them. And then another one will maybe have a little bit more dirt. 
and I'll tweak how I'm putting the plants and things in there or how close to the lighting it is or how the things are mounted. So everything will be pretty similar, but I want to tweak one aspect of each one and see if it makes a difference to how they interact with it. You know, and if I'm sure a lot of the tweaks won't make any difference at all, but I'm kind of seeing like, okay, is there something until I can go to, you know, Roddy Island and find them and watch them, you know, I don't know exactly how they're going to utilize the things that I'm giving them. And that's where I think we kind of are at a lack of like a, a, we're at a, a disadvantage because we can create the perfect environment. We can copy a picture exactly but we still aren't seeing exactly how those animals would interact with that wild environment and how, like, do, do I need to go, like, would it benefit for some monitors? It would benefit people to go get giant rotting, at, rotting logs full of bugs and crap and chuck it in their enclosure and let their monitors just go to town on it. Like that would be great. Like, but these guys probably don't do that, but I bet they hide in a lot of, you know, tree crevices, but what does that look like? Is it vertical? Is it, fallen logs do they like you know an angled branch more i don't know and it, i don't have a way to see that so that's one thing like me and eric are hoping to do we were hoping actually to do it this year but covid um so over the next couple of years we're actually planning a couple trips to uh um the solomon islands to go see the spinulosis nice. and then hoping to get down to roddy island i want to I, at some point i want to get to sawu island i want to get to lesser sunda i want to see my team in the wild you know i want to go and literally i just want to go out there for like a week and me and her are going to walk into the woods with the people we know. We're going to camp. And I'm just going to fi- I'm going to wake up in the morning, sit next to a tree with a, with a camera and a notebook. And we're just going to sit there all day and just watch crap and just watch what things are doing and how are they interacting and where are the monitors going and coming from when we see them. And like, where are we finding them when we don't do go walk around? Like yeah. spinulosis are a great example of just a massive problem with husbandry because and one, everybody I know keeps them way too hot and cooks them all. Because they, again, we talked about earlier with the heating, they keep them like all monitors, you know, and that's kills them. And then the other thing is they treat them arboreal, arborally, arboreally. (laughs) And it's the same thing with like mangroves and things like that. Everybody treats them like a tree monitor. And, And when I talk to people like, yeah, but you see them in trees and pictures of them in trees all the time. And I'm like, yeah, pictures. Who took that picture? Well, not even that. Who took the picture? Was it magic or did a giant naked gorilla show up in the middle of the forest and click a thing at it because that big weird naked gorilla of tromping through the forest scared the piss out of that animal and it ran up the tree to get away from it that's why you found it in a tree you don't know that it was in that tree the whole time and that was the problem with spinulosis people were treating them arboreal because that's where they see them in the wild and when they collect them they collect a bunch of them from you know tree areas and like forested areas but when you actually look at what how they actually utilize their environment they burrow all of the time they, li- they, li- they have to be under something. They never bask out that high, unless that's the only place for them. They'll hang on lower branches. They like sitting on a log or a branch off of a log that they can kind of just hang on but drop off if they want. But they're not... The lower up- land. Yeah. The, the, the lower level. Yeah, but they're not going vertical, and they're not sitting on the cork on the sides. They're not hanging on the wall like you see with a lot of, like, um, especially a lot of Australian species when they're breeding or gravid, they hang. I don't see the hanging at all with these, it barely at all. Um, and they just, cause they just really don't utilize that space. You know, I full disclosure, I get, got my first pair of peacocks. Actually they were Kai's uh, before I really knew Kai and talking to him. And then they changed hands as far as a friend bringing them, you know, from Kai basically to me. Um, 
But when I got that girl, she was actually gravid. And I think about a week later, you know, gave 13 great looking eggs. Um, yeah, I really kicked myself in the foot for that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, to the listeners out there, don't worry. Those eggs never made it. So you're not missing out on any peacocks that were floating around. Oh, you know, real quick, I want to touch on this. Something I went over with Kai real quick. Um, on this incubator, I was uh, incubating these eggs um, with one of the Exoterra. Um, <laughs> so you either cooled them or cooked them. Yeah. So, yep. and, and this recently happened. I saw a post on the Aki monitor page where someone else had a similar thing. Um, Sean Harrington, the frog whisperer, does a lot of really amazing lizards. He had one of those that had easily eight to $10,000 worth of eggs in it. And it turned into a refrigerator and killed them all. Um, And this is, again, not a competition thing, not a brand love thing, anything. Literally, when it comes to Exoterra, I love a lot of their products. I don't touch anything that they have that's electronic ever. Their monsoon misting systems had so many electronics and failures and issues. Their incubators are known for failing. They're known for failing. Like, so I don't know why. I don't know. They make some incredibly looking, great looking, great... If it could function right, it would be incredible. But they just have the worst luck with electronics. Right. Now, interesting enough, so I think these eggs were about at day 70. You know, I'm turning the corner. I'm excited. 13 great-looking eggs in this thing. Uh, no duds. No no work. <laughs> yeah, no work. They came yeah. to me that way. Yeah. It was awesome, right? I'm like, yes, getting this peacock project off the ground. And there's a little bit of this is going to work out great dreams and all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I leave one day. I walk in maybe about 12 hours later. And I look at the uh, the temp reading, 113. And oh. my heart. Oh. Now, yeah, well, the, the universe said that you didn't do none of this work. Yeah, you didn't so work for it. Take it back. <laughs> you don't deserve <laughs> these. Um, dude, being honest, like the ones that I have, people keep asking me about breeding them too. And I'm like, honestly, I've been working with them for years but I haven't been focused on breeding them at all. The babies that I got were from one of the last imported females that came in um, and she came in gravid. So like I had, so granted. What, what like, we're going to do though, what, what we're going to do for you guys, we're going to figure out what you're not doing. Right. <laughs> or what you're currently doing and then just do the opposite. <laughs> do a little, well, do a little though, bit different. Being honest, I've been maintenance feeding them the whole time. I haven't done seasonality with them. I've intentionally not been breeding them um, yeah. and, and trying. Because, again, I was trying to solidify wild-caught animals to be right. more adaptable in the future and be more like, – be. they'll work better with you when changing their habitats and their environments and their seasons if they're used to their habitat and enclosure. So, like, it was getting them to that so that I can start to reliably – and I'm that's another thing, too, like – as for breeding reptiles, I am the most passive, don't give a crap. If they do it, that's awesome. If they don't, I'm not out anything. I just love that I have them. I love that hatching babies is the coolest freaking thing ever. I don't care what anybody says. But if they don't do it, like, right. they don't do it. As long as they're healthy and they're doing good, I'm cool with it. So, what about the curiosity, though? No, but no, now, no, no. Definitely. Yeah, I've been doing this for, like, ever. <laughs> like, yeah, I just, I've never lose that. But it's it becomes a time management of where's my curiosity got to go. Um, but, no, there's always – now with the, some of these monitors, it's it's become a lot. My collection of animals is, I mean, at one point I was probably around 400 animals, but I was doing a lot of gecko species. Yeah, that's um, so many. Yeah, I but like, 
once I had my kid, like I had kids and I had my, I had twins. So I went from two to four. Um, and it was like, I just didn't have the time to be down there doing it all the time. And, yeah. and then I kind of, in order to back it off, it was like, where do you start? You know? And right. the first thing I said to myself was, and, and I kind of got this mentality of if, if everything I produce is worth nothing and I'm just doing it cause I love it. And then I give them away because they're not valuable. They're just a thing. What would I keep just cause I want to interact with it and I love it. And that's how I went forward. And it's completely changed how I keep animals, how I enjoy it, what I'm doing. I have way less animals, but they're all doing so much better. I'm able to do these things like play with their environments and really just nerd out and question myself and do that kind of stuff. Keeping the fun in it still. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of making it a job. Like that's why I also never wanted to like work with reptiles and breed them as a as a business is cause yeah. I don't care how much like love your job and you'll never work a day in your life. I don't care who you are. No one loves their job cause it's always work and it's always stress. <laughs> like there is no job that I've ever run into that doesn't at least once in a while stress you out because of like your check get not coming on time or like literally anything. So there is no job. There's no stress, but I can make these no stress and just be a hobby and just be fun. You know, like yeah. when things happen, like it's stressful when things happen, it sucks, but like there's ups and downs. But I guess you got sure. a game plan though. I yeah. think you have, I think you have, you know, what, what I mean is, uh, like, um, the project that you have going on, I mean, you just been, you've been doing what I would say, all the footwork and essential, just, just, uh, adapting them and buying yeah. as many as you can. And, you know, even hatching out the, the captive hatch ones, which, which gives you, it's like, it's like, um, you know, the universe saying, Hey, like, you know, you're almost there. I know. Like we're giving you a little taste. Of- <laughs> We're giving you a little taste. You're almost there, you know, yep. and just uh, push hard. Because that's what I've been doing with my my guys at first. I thought I was breeding them, but really it was just me getting parthenogenic animals, you know. Yep. And then I kept on getting parthenogenic animals. And then I actually found a male, started breeding them. And then, you know, some of the parthos I raised up to now breed. So this is, this is where I'm currently at now. But then, yeah. you know, um, I haven't – had like the greatest success where it's like bam you just you just have non-stop success they breed and then they lay and then you hatch out a bunch i mean i've had a lot of a lot of spurt a lot of small spurts but you know i want to definitely take it further only because like okay sure most people would consider yourself done when you get to here you know like yeah. all right i'm, I'm already done with the project that's right now I don't right, know why it is. it's happening right. yet. I don't yeah, totally I'm know getting... why. And that's the yeah. problem. That's where yeah. that's where we're getting I'm, stuck. This like, is where we're at. Yep. I'm so. I'm about a block behind you. And yeah. I just turned the corner of all right, now we're cycling and we're going into breeding. You're all healthy, you're solid, the foundation's yeah. laid. Now we're turning this corner, so this is the year. You're just yeah. past that, but we it's still it's gotta be consistent. And the other piece of it too, like keeping Indo species is kind of like, especially when all your buddies keep Odatria, Aussie stuff and, and like water right. monitors that just crap out eggs. Cause they sneeze. Like yeah. it's so annoying. Cause then they're like, yeah. dude, you had those things for like two years. Why don't you have eggs yet? And I'm like, yeah. I don't have the crested geckos of Not monitors. Dude. Bro. Yeah. Like everybody was <laughs> like, I'm going to get lace monitors. And I'm like, yeah, cool. You're going to get 20 clutches a year. They're not going to stop ever. You can also get crested geckos and they're the same. Like they just cost a lot and people think they're yeah. cool, but they're not hard right. to keep. They're not hard to breed and, and they produce a ton. We're talking about stuff that there's 50 people in the country going, what did you do? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't even know why I have eggs. I have a couple questions with what you're, you know, going to what 
you're uh, doing or not doing. We're trying to basically figure out what you're currently doing and then maybe do something slightly different, right? So yeah. I had a couple questions, and this is what I did to change from not really just keeping and not really getting successful clutches or whatever came out. Like these are what happened, right? The female would go through part of the cycle or part of the process and then just not lay. So it, she'd either reabsorb or do whatever, um, or the eggs would come out very, very poorly. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, poor by poorly, I mean, porous, shaped, uncalcified, yeah. uh, uncalcified, things like that, D dimples, dots, unsmoothness. Basically, they're not looking smooth, right? And so, um, you know, these are the things that I had issues with. And um, I was going with the normal recommended regimen of using like d3 or using um uvb as well right and not to use it and then only use it a couple times a week right um that's how what they recommend for most lizards but i started doing it like every day and then i started dusting and you know just doing things like that much more and i went with like my my current kimberly's um there was a point where i was raising them mostly on you know chicks um ground turkey stuff grasshoppers um you know and then i do roaches and crickets here and there i also do like crickets covered in like guts and stuff but i was raised that was just what i was raising them on but when i went to breed people were telling me to use insects more right yep. leaner um, yep right but it wasn't working that well for what i was getting a result of yeah but then once i switched it up and i started adding the chicks back in a little bit of mice not so much um i was also using feeder lizards and then i also used the grasshopper still but um you know i was using just in insects for a while with just them so it was like mealworms um roaches crickets superworms, and the grasshoppers and really not using chicks or anything like that as well or or egg or anything yeah but once i started using that again into my thing um my eggs now are currently coming out great and the clutches are looking really really good and with just in the small time frame from not using uvb and then not really using great calcium supplements and as as much as i was and then also the amount of protein it was compared to the diet that i was using before which was just insects because that's what was recommended with me for breeding process right mm -hmm. um and essentially, I didn't want to. What what I did is I didn't. I stopped using mice and chicks because I didn't want to kill my animals, and so right. they were just recommending, you know, use that. So um, to just use insects. But once I got back into that, my eggs, right, or like I said, were doing so much better. So maybe, you know, I'm not sure what you're feeding currently, but um, like I think you mentioned, you were just kind of right now. They're just being fed once a week, right? But yeah, they're um, in kind of a maintenance right. mode, so they, and I change it every week. It'll be it's whatever, like it'll be fish one chunks when I it's whenever I thought everything for the spinulosis, yeah. they get the rest. Like I cut okay. up stuff for them, so they get shrimp, fish, rodents, you know, bugs, a couple different kinds of insects, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I keep it pretty yeah. varied. But no, the, the nutrition's a huge thing. That's a huge miss for reptiles too. And the other piece of it too, me and Erica started talking about this. We don't. A lot of people don't realize how how many trace minerals and micronutrients are literally laying on the grass outside in our house. Like the Amazon rainforest, the majority of dirt in the Amazon rainforest comes from the savannas of the of Africa, because it's it's from dust storms that get carried in the jet stream and it slowly dusts all of South America. So you can get 
dirt that you can trace back to Africa all over the rainforest. So if you start to think about how much stuff is in the air from that dirt, you know, particles of different types of, um, you know, different types of rocks and dust and sand and, you know, pieces of, of, of debris and, and, and um, any materials that literally just anything can be in the air. There's so much more on a blade of grass than you would think. And when we take, you know, these, these, these diets and things like that, and we're feeding these animals, we're not t- thinking about all of that. And while, while we are looking at some of the ma- like I would say mi- uh, macronutrients, all the big things like calcium and phosphorus and proteins and major things that we think about, we are missing a lot of those trace elements. Um, and that's one thing we've been doing with a lot of our stuff is we actually mix our own vitamins now. So I got a mortar and pestle, and I get a bunch of like, um, my, you know, uh, uh, mineral mineral ta- like mineral tabs and micro uh, micro proteins, like all these and different just, random just stuff. Your own, right? Yeah, and we just kind of grind yeah. it all up. We add a bunch of calcium. Um, we take a look. The other thing too is taking a look at the sources of vitamin A that you're feeding. Some of those vitamins, the sources they come from, are are herb or herbivorous sources they're vegetable matter so even though it's an, a vitamin a molecule it's a type of molecule that is it, that your monitor won't be able to break down because it can't break down that type of vitamin a mm-hmm. so there's multiple types and pathways to vitamin a you got to make sure you're yeah. using the right one and it, that happens mm-hmm. with a lot of other uh, minerals and stuff too and, and and nutrients that they need is you need to make sure that the type there you're giving them is going to be one that they can use so like um, beef yeah. liver pills are another one that we grind up beef liver pills, um, which have a ton of uh, nutrition in it too. And we just grind that up and do a super fine powder. Yeah, dude, yeah, I'll, I'll, a... I'll send you guys some of the, the random stuff we get. But I, like, if I go to Walgreens to grab stuff, I'll go through the vitamin section and I'm looking for anything that's a, a tablet that I can grind up that's got you know just micronutrients and or um, just some of the, the 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 compounds that we don't really think of that athletes and things will think of are really crazy nutritional people will actually analyze that but for us and our yeah. animals we're so pulled away from that and looking at the diet that we're not thinking that way and i think for a lot of these monitor species especially because of how lean they are i really put monitors in the same class if we we're comparing them to people they really are the athletes they're lean they're quick they're they have burst energy they build metabolism they need a lot of calories but they need a lot of lean calories so i kind of look at them more like you would look at like you feeding them more like you would do for training someone rather than just feeding them for like you would your dog. Cause if you don't feed your dog, they die. Like it's different. So that's, I mean, some of that stuff I think is, has made some differences in, in our animals ability, especially to rebound during that first couple of years and really solidify um, a lot of their organs and stuff too. Cause you really got to care about it's one thing that because all those import animals are incredibly dehydrated and they have a lot of renal yeah. issues and you need to give them those vitamins and minerals that they need to help their liver and kidneys and their renal system bounce back. So you know, kind and, of to go, go back a little bit is uh, I'm about where you are as far as the, the peacocks, the Timors, um, the similis, and uh, there's a group of blue trees. I think I'm right in the same area with all of those where I'm missing something. Obviously they haven't been producing, but uh, the focus was on first off a large portion of those were actually small animals. They came in as babies, um, raising those up, um, seeing what they would eat. And just, I was always trying to keep that, you know, it's still stuck in my head as far as that ideal jungle uh, humidity and always jungle type of um, environment. But my focus wasn't necessarily that I was going after that. It was just trying to give them something so I could reach 
I don't know, homeostasis per se. Right. Just make sure they're thriving and doing good. But um, yeah, to go back to um, some of this is just, I, I think I'm at that point now where, okay, it's time to start tweaking yep. things, maybe throwing in seasons, maybe <clears> what you can food. and can't handle. Yeah, give it a try. Well, push and that's push season, the, a wet season, yeah, push into the limit just a little bit. Yeah, well, like and this. With, with Indo, honestly, if you start looking into a lot of the Indo stuff, I actually started taking a lot of my advice um, on some other snakes that I was I, like. Garrett Hartle is has got dwarf retics down, and he's t- he, yeah. some of these animals, some of these localities of dwarf retic, they basically live on a mangrove swamp in the middle of the ocean, and then when the tide goes down, there's land for like 12 hours and then the tide comes back in and it's a mangrove swamp underwater. So these animals don't like, they, they have, they don't have like just free range to go eat and do whatever they want. So he really nailed in what their cycle is. And when you start looking at the seasonal, that, Oh God, that kills me. I look, you look at the Solomon islands and look at their seasonal variation. And they're like, the rainy season is January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, not September because there's three less inches out of the nine feet. <laughs> yeah. And then the other ones are, you know what I mean? Like, it's not really a dry, wet season. You see some variant, but it's not a lot. And then yeah. the temperature is the same thing. It's like at night it's 78, and during the day it's 85, and then it, so, it does this sometimes. So like, the, what, what, I, uh, what Danny uh, Gorman, uh, I think, I'm not sure if many of you guys know this, he's the gentleman behind Albino Salvatore. Um, he's currently in, I believe he's in Indonesia and, um, you know, he's, he's doing, he bred like T negative back to T negatives, T negatives and T positives. He's gotten some like paradox looking thing with a bunch of spots on it. And he does, he does really great work with, um, Salvatore's. Now I was asking him just to like about how the seasonal is and just, just personally, as an American, he can translate so much better than me. You know, yeah, like, oh, for sure. Dissect anything, and he's there, and um, he's typically pretty good with sharing. You know, and so um, I really just was starting asking him about some pictures that he was sharing, and I was asking about surface temperatures and things like that, and it basically led to a conversation about the seasons, right? And um, during their dry period, it's really just they get their coldest nights during that period and it's just less cloudy. That's it. Yeah. The cloud allows things to escape more, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, the it, sunniness, it, it dries it all out quick. Right. It exactly. It's almost it. the same amount. It just <laughs> yep. dries faster. Yeah. It's just no clouds during that time. And that's all he said. He's like, it's a little bit cooler because the clouds aren't trapping in all the heat. And um, when it's, rainy it's basically just cloudy all the time yeah yeah and um you know i've i've really taken that into all right they, they do have something different it isn't just humid there all the time because it's yeah. on the equator and it's you know it's it it isn't and so um at first that's what i used to think all right i'm gonna have a dense cage full of plants and all decked out spray it all the time you know keep it alive and lush my animals loved it when it looked like fall, you know, yeah. <laughs> they, yep. they love it when it looks like fall. It's just, things are dry, brittle. Yeah. Like, they're out more now that all their plants yeah. got dried out and died. Like, yeah. And I'm looking at these yeah. and I'm like, God, dude, I've got to go back to home Depot, buy 20 of these freaking palm trees. This is such crap. And they're like, nah, we're good with this like crispy leaf. But like, yeah. that's, that's where me and Garrett got into the conversation of like seasonality. And he's like, it's not, 
it's not temperature humidity like it is in a lot of other places like Australia and stuff that people are focusing on. It's seasonal food and it's migrations through those areas. And like when you're talking about the rainy season and they're coming into the rainy season and that's when they start getting all pumped up, that's because all the frogs are going to start breeding and they're going to start having a ton of frogs and food. And then that's what kicks them into their cycle because they're like, look, we know it's about to be a, a walking buffet out here time to start getting ready and cycling to get ready to absorb that food like with the re- the dwarf retics that's what garrett does all year it's one food item a month just maintenance feeding and then when he's ready to cycle him he pounds them with something that looks like they shouldn't be able to eat it and that he yeah. gives them some stupidly huge piece of food yeah. and then that kicks their body into i've got resources it's time to start cycling and then he yep. then as soon as they're done digesting it it's like right in with the males and boom and he's got it people have been trying to breed some of those dwarf localities for 15 years and he's got it down to a science where he's just knocking it out. But that's, that's where that thing was. So that's kind of why, like when you said the same thing about feeding cycles, Indo is different. It's not a seasonality weather wise. It's a seasonality food availability wise. Yeah. It's crazy, man. I love, I love, I love uh, the difference in that, in that area. All of those are just, uh, it's like a wrench, Wrench and every I, I don't I don't know how, how to say it right. It's just like uh, everything's working a little different. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just a whole. They've developed whole especially mess. little islands. You know, it's like yeah, this one's a little yeah. different. This one's a little different. Well, this one's got more of a mainland, and there's things that adapt in the middle of the mainland, yeah. and then there's things along the coast, and you know, dude, we we could get into a whole like. This would have to. This will have to be another episode where you get me on my other soapbox, and that would be <laughs> micro, microclimates and understanding where your animals actually spend their time. So, yeah, like, yeah. like I want to reinvent how we look at animal care and husbandry. Instead of starting with this picture of Africa and going, oh, and they yeah. need a little humid hide because they go in a burrow sometimes, but the rest of it looks like a savanna where they never are. Why would you do that? How about instead we focus on a really, really incredible den that you can see, and then the outside little tiny chunk over here is where they can get out and bask if they want to. But the den yeah. is a perfect environment, and that is where we we, inter- we look at them and start building it from like, okay, if they spend 90% of their time in a hole in the ground, why is 4% of their enclosure a hole in the ground? Like, and that's where all the husbandry mistakes come in because now it's too dry for the animal. Well, this animal lives in Iraq. It's obviously dry. Yeah, but it's not underneath that rock where it spends 23 hours a day. So, yeah, that's the problem yeah. with Odatria. That's actually why me and Erica got rid of all of our Australian dwarfs. I got, I want to say we got a dozen adult King Gorham over a couple of years, and every single one of them died from renal issues, gout, dehydration every single one of them and even animals like primordius that came from well-known breeders who really know their stuff with odatria i was getting them with like in just same rough shape and it's because everybody goes yeah they live on these hot rocks same thing kimberly same thing like all their kimberly's (laughs) weirdly kimberly's yeah mine mine love it cooler like I'll, i'll have it blistering and i used to have it blistering like 140 right like Okay, screw it. Let's just do it. You know, if you do it yeah, at a spot this big, they'll love it. But the rest of the enclosure can't yeah. be that hot, right. right? And they don't want it that hot. They actually prefer it not to be. And I started doing like a, so I have the bolt, the basking area, and then I have slanted hung um, platforms that they can either bask on 
or hide behind and then hide behind another yeah. platform that's like that, right? And so they would always just be there. And then I was just like, all right, I'm going I'm to turn this other bulb off real quick and just see if 120, 115 is what they like right now. And man, they do they do so much more just because I don't think they're you know it's when it's one forty they're just like man it's so hot I can't well, have sex I can't do anything like, I don't want to do anything. Well, the yeah. other thing too, think about it this way: this is where the problem is with husbandry of a lot of animals. So okay, they live on the rocky outcrops out in the desert in Australia. That's cool. Yeah. If we take a picture of that and you're not there and you're just looking at an image, you're looking at dry desert, no lush, nothing, and a mm-hmm. big rock, and you're assuming. It's like it would be anywhere that you've seen or seen videos of where it's dry, bone dry, it's horrible. And it is, it is to an extent. <laughs> However, some of those giant rocks have cracked, crack, they don't live on the surface. The surface of some of those rocks breaks 200 Fahrenheit. Like you can actually boil water on those rocks they live in. They don't live on them because they'd be dead. Where they yeah. live is in these crevices that go into these rocks down into the ground where it's 55, 60 degrees down there and 99% humidity from the water yeah. seeping down into the rock during the rainy season. Like, mm-hmm. that's... King uh, uh, Orem are another one that get... Like, that's the one that I saw the most issues with, and they're the biggest crevice-dwelling insectivore, period. Turkey yeah. diets with them is a horrible idea. Like, you can't. They're insectivores. The reason they have such a long tail is actually what they do. This is one of the reasons I love King Gorham. They walk into a crevice and then they open their mouth and they take their tail and they poke it through the crevice and chase any bugs into their mouth with their tail. <laughs> like they nice. eat like spiders that are back in these crevices and they use their tail to poke them out of the crack and chase them into their mouth. Like Interesting. Yeah, but like so- they live in this teeny little crack in this huge red rock. But it's not like that. And we got to look at those kind of things and develop them, develop some of the habitats based around um, their microclimate. The little micro habitat as well. Yeah. I started telling people, if you're going to keep Australian Odatria, keep them like you think you should be keeping Indo species, like humid and cold. For, um, I guess, you know, for the people that are beginning and they're listening to this and they kind of, you know, we're, we're talking as, you know, we've been basically back and forth trying to figure out what it's like captivity taking instances or ideas from the wild trying to apply it you know back and forth right but for for what we're trying to explain here you can't just keep them blistering hot and not have substantial humidity to back it up exactly you just can't you just can't have them um bone dry or enclosure that is uh, essentially nothing to have substantial humidity or an escape route or or to go revamp and you know either cool off or get humid again right um those enclosures for me that's what i learned is i used to think that the kimberleys needed to be blistering hot and then at the same time i only had a little nest bin so the rest of the enclosure was dry and then i started having issues and they weren't really producing well or things like that and then once i kind of cooled it down and then i started adding different ways to heat the soil because yep. at one point I was just, uh, you know, having really thin amounts of uh, uh, of sand or soil at the very base, and it was dry with leaf litter, and that's it. But I would think, all right, the nest bin is enough to go to, but it wasn't really saturating the air in the enclosure, yeah. right? And so that's what I'm doing now is I actually have full-on nesting ability and a foot of sandy moist soil in the enclosure as well as the nest bin and so this has been able to keep them i i, I think supported a little better than rather than being just so bone dry 
Oh, right. Um, and you see better action out of them, too. Like, you can even, you can soak a monitor every day and let it have a bath every day. And if you put it back into an enclosure that's that dry, it absorbs it. Out. You literally take the humidity out of the of their body just from them breathing. Because when they breathe out, they breathe out humidity like we do. If you breathe against a window, it makes right. fog. If you put yourself into an area where there's zero humidity or it's 10 or 20%, it's literally desiccant dry, which is what a lot of those enclosures turn into. Then just just breathing is dehydrating them. And you end up with renal issues and liver issues and uh, and what ends up looking like metabolic bone disease or they don't hold weight and they, or their weight's weird. I see a lot of Indonesian monitors and monitors in general where it's a big, chunky female, but her hips yeah. are tiny, her tail's tiny, yeah. and her legs are scrawny. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, yeah, but that's yeah, part that of it. Look. All yeah, the time. Look. And, it's, and, yeah, it's, and it, it's that, and then it's the idea of, like, like for enclosure size, I mean, obviously not everybody needs to give their animal a room, but with monitors, like you said earlier, you've got to go <gasps> bigger. It's not good enough to just be like, you know... It, it ain't got enough room to move around and walk back and forth, and they'll do good. Like, and you could have some luck. There's, I know of some very prominent Salvatore breeders that basically have three 1.2 monitors in a tiny closet that barely they can move, and they produce a ton. At the same time, if you lock, if I lock you and two chicks in a closet, and I never let you out, at some point you're going to start throwing babies at me because <laughs> you're going to have nothing else to do. And that's why everyone in the Midwest is born in October, September, and August because there's nothing to do in January, February, and March when it's negative twenty. So like, the COVID, it's the COVID boom is coming. Yeah, well, dude, this is just the Midwest winter boom. It's a, a, me, all of my kids, my wife, all of us are born between August and November. There's a reason. Like, we're all that's, but that's the same thing. So you can't count. I don't count that success. And when you look at the animal and the animal's health. Or when you talk to these guys and they're like, yeah, my breeder, yeah, I, I lost a couple breeders last year. They were like eight years old. They've been producing tons of clutches. They just, you know, they got old. And I'm like, yeah, it sucks when that animal that lives to be 40 dies at eight of old age because that happens. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's tons of things we need to look at like that. And I think it really just comes down to paying more attention and understanding more about the animal's needs than what your idea is that you got from looking at a picture on the internet like right. and that's that's one thing that like i said me and eric are pushing ourselves once covid's over too is once a year we want to travel to one of the places that house the majority of these animals we work with i want right. to go see what is the dirt like what does the air feel like um what is the difference in temperature between my eyesight level and my ankles because in the rainforest here it's 95 degrees and 100 percent humidity and by my ankles it's 72 and 80 percent humidity like that how, I, that like how do people not understand like, that like frogs, yeah like dark frogs can't get over 80 degrees but they live in the 95 degree rainforest right where do they you know, live? i was i was down in um akumal down in uh where is that is that still mexico yeah it might be on i think so near the Yucatan. And um, basically, we were staying on the coast. It was right on the coast. It was a house. And come nightfall, if you were on the one side of the house that faced the coast and you got that breeze that came in, it was perfect. You could fall asleep just like that. If you're on the other side of the house that didn't have any windows facing that area, the air just hung there and you would sit there just sweating. Yeah. That's just that's just a house. So you got to imagine what these animals are feeling, what they're capable of doing and, and where they can get to based on their needs and just the differences in the environment like that environment has 
way more than just two options for the side of the house. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many levels and crevices and even stuff like in Florida, when I'm down in Orlando, I collect a whole bunch of like invasive millipedes. Cause we go out and that's what me and the kids do. We go pick up millipedes. You'll dig into this freezing cold dirt or maybe it's not freezing cold, but at night say it's like 60 degree dirt and I'm moving this dirt around. And what I do is I feel for warmth because the millipedes will get into an area where they start digesting and eating all that, the leaf litter and they create a little pocket of heat like you get if you were composting something. So if you feel for the warmth and the cold and you pull that apart, you'll just have a pile of them. That, but that's you'd never know that that existed or that they were able to create a 15 degree, 20 degree warmer temperature by composting. But that's how that's how animals incubate their eggs in the wild. Like they don't have oh, a yeah. they don't have a machine they put them in that keeps everything perfect. Like. But they're able to do that, like right, like yeah, you know, you just get your feet, your your monitor, you watch them go into the store, and you crap in the incubator, and then they come out, and we help them out. But like, like so, it's totally different. But like, there's so many pieces they can go and find that. Like talking about Brandon Shiflet, he did a post about finding ackee eggs, and he took a temp gun. He's like, they lay them at 86 degrees. So follow. I think she was digging around here, so he starts temping. He's like, okay, that's 80 in the right area. So he digs there. And he just kind of tempts and then he digs and keeps following 86 and boop, there's the eggs. <laughs> so that's exactly what I do too. Yep. I actually have it. I know it's designated in my nest bins. And so um, I'll have a, a slightly warmer side, but then I'll have the side that gets down to 80, even a side that gets to like 78, 79. And they'll lay within the range of one, I'm uh, sorry, between the range of 81 and uh, like 85-ish. Yeah, like they, they the, know. They, they feel it and they know. Like, yeah. dude, if I'm, instead I'm, of I'm looking a thermometer, for, I'm an idiot. Like, and they just are like, mm, yeah, I'll put my eggs in. That's cool. I'm doing things the right way. Right? For me, I've learned to develop. Uh, I've learned to develop a sense where my fingertips tell by feeling the texture of the soil. Yeah, if you that can, makes sense. Uh, you yeah. basically feel you can feel for um, the looseness or the 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 burrows, you know, tunnels that lead to it, and yep. then you, know, you can kind of just tap it and it'll indent and fall in, and then kind of lean towards going that direction. But sometimes yeah. they've you know they they've stirred me wrong and made like a whole U turn. Yeah, isn't that fun? Isn't that awesome when you're digging through an entire enclosure and you're touching? Because I do the same thing with a lot. Like when I had like Tristis, I was doing that. Yeah. 12 inches of substrate at the bottom and she goes in in the back corner and I'm like, crap. <laughs> so you go to, yeah. you start pulling it apart and you feel where it's soft and where it's hard. And that's why like most of my enclosures, like when I redo them or do anything, I pack the crap out of it. So the, and it would, and knowing it would just keep settling and be tight so that when I went in there, I could do that. I could push against it and kind of feel, all right, it's kind of loose here and you can kind of follow it around. And then you make it all the way around back to the other side and you're like, Oh, nope, there's the entrance. There's my fingers. Crap. Right. Let's go find missed. I missed something. And you're feeling the walls. And you're like, that's eh, kind of squishy. And eventually you just get pissed off and start turning all of the dirt. Cause you're, you're like, she just, she didn't even lay yet. I know it. Or he ate him, you know, yeah. like it's just, it's, she's just being a crazy, she's just so screwing with times. me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've done, you know, I and then you get frustrated. Well, then you get super frustrated. And you're just moving it, and then you flip an egg, and you're like, "Gotcha, that's where they were." Crap. Like, yeah, yep. yep. And they're that. done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, guys, and we are getting a little long now. I don't know if that first part uh, we still have it. Hopefully, <laughs> we'll we have to, do. We'll have to look at it all. 
Yeah, so hopefully we can splice it all together. If so, I think we're about two and a half, you know. We're going That's a long one, man. Right, yeah. yeah. So, but that's good. Yeah, no, no, we really appreciate you coming on. I mean, we're able to really get into um, details that I think just most people need to develop a sixth sense for. Absolutely. You know, like, I understand, you know, shoot, I can tell a beginner all day, hey, you need to, like, look at, um, you know, ex- ex- extent details of temperature and where these animals are from you know i i'd love to really tell them that but a lot not everybody's really gonna really take to to you right. telling them that for one because that's gonna I'm, I'm not i'm not sure what some people is just like hey you know that maybe they're they're um just the way of their learning and grasp on on knowledge is is super simple because these animals they're only i mean the people are really worried about the animals right they're not right really, trying to worry about like the whole ecosystem that they need to apply which does really benefit the whole animals everything right it all just kind of flows together but most people are really just worried about like heat them and feed them type deal you know um yep. but um yeah I, I really uh I'm, I'm i'm really hoping that people can really take from this is man we've kind of been doing it for a little while so it is kind of just second nature to us um, we do hope, we'll hope like you guys are thinking about these really small, they, they make their subtle details, but they make up, oh, yeah, it's what, a big what difference. About, you know, yeah. So, you know, when he's talking about microclimate and microhabitats is it's like an example, their, their escape route and where they're going to pocket up and hide for a while, things like that. And, and they'll have multiples of those where maybe one's in a tree and another one's in the ground and things like that. Those are those escape routes where they'll go to and like i was mentioning in a previous podcast you know they they really uh utilize more than we think about we're only looking at the soil and up but what about the soil and down you know and um you know i really i'm really glad on a lot of things you're able to point out for for some people to really grasp on because you know thinking in depthly like that is I, I really appreciate you for pointing some of those things out yeah well, that's that's I've been keeping animals for so long and dealing with reptiles for a long time. And, you know, my whole goal with everything that I do is I want to take the knowledge that we have from this amount of time and try and embed that knowledge into products and information for people without having to spell out the 20 years of mistakes and learnings that I've had or things that I've done. Like, how do you I can't I can't give you all my experience, but what I can tell you is. And like you said, you can tell people whatever you want, but if they don't want to hear it, it's not going to do anything. So yeah. I've kind of gotten to a point where I just don't want to, I, I'm not, I'm done. I'm done playing the game of if we work harder to educate people, the hobby will get better because it won't because nobody wants to, nobody listens. And the other part of that is people coming into like a pet store. When you go to like a pet or pet smart or local pet store, or whatever, if you, get a, a pet. if you get a, yeah, yeah. if they go in and they get a dog, everything you need for a dog is there and the knowledge is there and it's easy. So they come in with that same idea. They don't understand the difference in reptiles or hunting, and they don't even understand yeah. that there is a difference. They come in yeah. with that same idea of, I buy a kit, I have all the stuff I need right here, so it's just as simple as a dog or anything else, and they don't understand that. And and it, there's no way for us to get to a person who walks into one of those stores to get their first pet and get them to understand the amount of knowledge they really need to be really successful. But what we can do or what... In my position, what I've been trying to do is integrate that knowledge into the products without them ever having to know why it works or how it works. They just need to know that they need it and it works or it comes in the kit that they need and it's going to do something like having a human hide in a leopard gecko kit. 
They don't need to know why they need it. They just need to have it, and they need to put it together based on the instructions, and they'll be more successful because of that. And that's what we need to get to is creating things that allow people to be successful without needing to know why they were successful. Just long enough to get to the point where they start to learn about reptile shows or they start to buy their first book or dig into reptiles a little more. And then they get that itch for knowledge and learn how much better they can do. Because we all hit that point where we're like, the, you, the doors opened and you're like, oh my God, look at how much more there is. But when you yeah. first got your first reptile, nobody was like that. You're like, this is my cool little gecko and he's kind of neat. And you didn't know that, I didn't know shows existed. I didn't know there was a hobby. I just thought you just bought it like a pet and you're like, I have my yeah. dog and I have my lizard and whatever. But there's, right. there's more to it than that. And, and I think that's where we're going to be successful moving forward is giving some of these people that opportunity to understand they're going to fail and then try and give them the best information we can. And then going forward, set them up with the products and the things we need that have that knowledge that we have built into it. Now, Ryan, you say you're tired of it, but you're actually in reality sitting here with us. Help doing more me. than anything yeah <laughs> Dude, I Yo, think, you know what's right, crazy okay like I, will, I, I, I don't think my whole life has been there's no reason to have this much knowledge on something if i can't share it and you know, that's, that's I, how I, I say all the time like i say all the time like you know um i think it's just a common joke like you know f people and uh i just can't deal with people and stuff like that right uh, to be honest, I, I love people. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure people. Some it's it's all about it's all a, it's all about that. I guess at the end yeah. of the day, like I'm trying to help these people out, and then they help their animals out. And um, you know, I a person like me, I used to be, you know, kind of secluded in the background. I do my own thing, and now it's like, all right, sure, I'm kind of like a face to some of this stuff now, and um, I'd like to at least, you know. Um, just be able to utilize what I'm doing and give back. Right. And I didn't think I'd have like a YouTube and podcast and right. being able to reach people regularly back and forth. But man, I find myself like in the front, like doing it, all of this stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's different. Like I, I would expect, man, I'd be, just be burnt out. Right. Cause you've been doing this for so many years, Yeah, but it's, I, it's I all about where here, your passion is. You know? It's all about where yeah, your passion I find myself here. I actually, I, f I almost find my passion is more in getting more other people excited about reptiles than it is about the reptiles themselves. Yeah, so when people get it, when they click, when it clicks for them, it's the I'm coolest like, thing right. ever when you're talking to them and they get it and they get excited and they start nerding out with you. Like that's, that's why I love coming on to stuff with this. I can just nerd out with you guys about micro right. and UV wavelengths and that kind of stuff versus like, I still... And I mean, I'm not giving up on people at all. I, I'm, I, it was more about, I'm giving up on the idea that we can educate them to be good keepers right away. That's just right. not how it's going to work. And I'm sick of thinking that's a thing. I'm never yeah. going to give up on educating people. Like it, anybody wants to have me for a talk or anything, I'll talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. If I think I'm getting some knowledge out there, because that's the only way that the hobby is going to improve. And I need it to be around for my kids and I need it to be around right. for the future. And it's a really, there's so much positive to it. We just need to get people to see that and enjoy yeah. it and do it right. And we need, herpeticulture is still the Wild West. We don't think it is. And we freak out about the laws and all the stuff going on. But we don't know how to really take care of a ton of stuff. There's an enormous right. amount of knowledge we just don't have. And, yeah. and, and modern herpeticulture, the UV bulb was invented and marketed in 1993 by ZoomEd. That wasn't even what is it? it wasn't even thirty years ago. The active modern it hobby is less than thirty years old. Like mm -hmm. 
that you have to understand that like it's young and the faster that we can grow and get forward and get our husbandry better and our technologies better and our care better, our best management practices, all of it, everything that we can get better faster, the quicker that we'll get out of this being the target for everybody. Right. You know, you touch on something real important there and um, maybe you can wrap up a little bit on that is just, I I love that this is a, a platform that we can do this kind of stuff where we can talk to each other and have a free conversation because we're all in this trying to do the same thing. We're trying to have that success to see those little faces pop out of eggs and then share that and get the excitement into those other people out there. Um, But unfortunately on other platforms where it's just, you know, a a Facebook page, somebody might be in, in camp Ryan or the other half in camp Allen. And then you got camp Kai. And the fact is we could all call each other on the phone and have a conversation Exactly. Sometimes people get divisive over, hey, and we're just here to share these ideas. That was like the UVB, UV index thing. There's two camps on that. They're both right and they're both wrong. And together, they're both right. What can we learn? Yeah. Yeah. So there's plenty of that, you know? So coming together, even if like you may not agree exactly with someone else, the way they're doing with stuff, um, and then you're doing something else, you know, it's, it's good to be able to. No, there's other options to uh, possible ways to think, you know, and and, and uh, it's kind of like how I kind of say it all the time. Uh, there's many ways to skin this cat or something like that, you know. Yeah. It's where uh, it's it's being done, and um, we just want to now trying to see what else we can add to this. Uh, what oh, we can exactly. Do a little bit more because there's still a little bit more work to be done. A bit, but yeah. Uh, like if you had a success, I want to know how you got there, and then I want to know like, okay, now where are you going? Yeah. I'm gonna try something a little different. We'll keep talking. Let's get to yeah. the same point where we know there's success and now let's veer off and see who has more success trying something different. And we'll just right. keep doing that and adding to the knowledge of successful things until we build the the recipe, the recipe right. for doing it. Yeah. And, and to be honest, it's like having a mental, a mental state where this is how usually this is how you're supposed to think. And it isn't, one way it's yeah. free free thinking try everything can, yeah and with try the things everything. that work right and, and things that uh, work for you know, might not work for me but it might work for right. me totally different and there's no reason for it but just yeah. keep exploring <laughs> yeah. those things you know yeah that's All the right. best way well thanks man i really appreciate you for coming on and sharing absolutely guys with us and everything We'll have you right, on man, again soon a... if you're up for it, Ryan. Do you then? Always. Yeah. Like I said, anytime, anytime I can get on and anybody and hang out and just talk and share information and pick each other's brains and add to the cloud of knowledge that's out there and what we're doing, like, that's the point. That's why I do this. This is why I love it. Like, I don't read yeah. scientific articles because it's super fun. I mean, I think it's fun, but I'm a nerd. Um, but, <laughs> but like, I want to know that stuff so I can incorporate it into what I do. And if I have successes, I want – dude, if I get all these peacocks breeding on a schedule, you're going to know how I'm doing it. And everyone oh, yeah. that has a pair is going to know how I'm doing it. Like, but that's yeah. the point. That's I, I want them to be out there more, not just so I can be the guy. Like, I don't – that's never been a thing for me. I, I, it's weird. People think I'm a big deal. I'm still this nerdy little kid that thinks toads are cool. Like, <laughs> I don't, it, I don't care. It's, I just want everybody else to be successful and have fun. And it's, it rising tides raise all ships. That's what it's supposed to be about. And that's what the hobby needs to be about. Not who yeah. has the coolest morph and breeds the coolest thing and is the on the YouTube you know, on YouTube I, the most. It's who's I, I, who's really making I've the hobby forward. You know, I've seen a guy 
and I, I used to kind of look up to him too and he used to be a great water monitor breeder but man it just don't let it go to your head man you're just doing little lizards you're doing awesome stuff but you know it, it's all about how you go about helping the next guy come up to this guy right. well what, what i what i'm trying to say is you know you may be doing awesome stuff and some people are like oh i can't tell nobody else because they're gonna take my thunder away or they're gonna take my source of income um i mean man i understand that's how some people think because it is a source of income for them and that's their bulk income or something like that but there's a lot of little little lizards and people that are essentially suffering confused because you couldn't share yeah, and you yeah. couldn't really break knowledge and help them out. And you decided to take your ego and all that stuff into uh, like you just let let it, you know, kind of unleash itself where, you know, you're you're kind of just uh, pushing everybody away that you may be able to help. You know, there's going to people keep people that are are literally lined on my messages, you know, trying to message me about mangrove monitors and how I'm doing this and that with them. And they have other species that are very similar that they're trying to crack themselves and unlock themselves and i am i may be holding this torch right but i'm not going to hold this thing forever right you know somebody's going to use what, and i'm talking yeah. about somebody's going to use what you didn't figure out something you didn't think of else. and yeah yeah like and that's dude we're all just going to keep doing this until we get the, the 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 formulas down then we'll just write a book and tell everybody like look it's not hard just don't be an idiot yeah. and you know stop trying to yeah. put a broad brush stroke of husbandry across everything because you want it to be easy yeah, I mean they are monitors, but they they are all a little bit different. That's why that's that's why it's like that, you know. And yeah, and this makes it this cool, thing, right? Mm-hmm. All right, man. So <laughs> we ready to wrap up now again? Yeah, <laughs> better be. Yeah, dude. There's yeah, a burrito yeah. right there with my name on. <laughs> it's a great. It's a whole great thing going on. No, all I mean, right. it, it was great. Yeah, it was good stuff. Ryan, thanks for coming on. Um, again, everybody that's listening. Thank you for being with us so far. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep bringing you more content, more people. We can share these experiences just like we've been talking about. Uh, in the meantime, please go and check out uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, sign up for their Patreon so we can help get some more content out to you on different platforms. I'm sorry, not different platforms, but different podcasts. And check out everything they got available to you already i'm gonna wrap it up here just because we've been going so long so again guys thanks and and have a good one have a good take care guys see you later man thank you later guys